the revolution will not be televised. The Fox News decision desk can now project that former Vice President Joe Biden will win Pennsylvania and Nevada, putting him over the 270 electoral votes he needs to become the 46th president of the United States. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. If you count the votes that came in late. Yeah, nigga, fuck Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, fuck Donald Trump. Yeah, fuck Donald Trump. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast. Happy New Year. Happy 2021. This is The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, the place for history, politics, and philosophy. My name is Ricardo Alvarez, and I'm one of your co-hosts, along with my friend and colleague, Rob Snyder. Rob? Hey, man. Feels good to be back. Yes, good to see you again. Happy New Year. And we're also joined by two special guests, our latest guests on the show, who were also in the last episode of Season 1, Peter Nebrez. Hey, guys. Good to be back. Hey, Peter. Happy New Year to you and Rohan Puri from Chicago. Hey, guys. Look at us. We're, we're back to back. You know, <laughs> I'm pumped. It was such a good episode last time that we just, had to, we just had to do a repeat, right? We have to start season two the way that season one ended. I'm excited to have everybody on the show. Thank you, listeners, for coming back uh, and joining us in this brand new year. Already a lot of news, a lot of things to talk about, and we're only about three weeks in. This is season two, episode one. The Capitol Insurrection and the Future of Trumpism. First, before we begin, uh, because I know that we have listeners all over the world. Last time I checked, we're almost in 30 different countries in six different continents, which is super exciting for us, right? Shameless plug over there. Um, I wanted to just go ahead and go around the room. And because we're talking about the Capitol Insurrection, uh, you know, the four of us are Americans. Uh, Rob, I think you were in Germany when this happened, uh, or maybe you had just left the United States. Uh, but I just want to go around and get each of our own reactions to what happened that day, January 6th, at the Capitol, uh, when we began to see the storming of the Capitol building by these rioters who were incited by President Trump. So whoever wants to go first, you know, I'd love to, to maybe hear what was going through your mind, how you were feeling, uh, how you felt about the images or some of the video that was coming out of the news. I'd be really curious to know. I, I can go first here because I was actually... I, I knew I was I was watching it because I knew that the the there was going to be objections to certain votes and I wanted to hear you know who's saying what because I had a feeling that this was going to be one of those um, benchmarks for which GOP representatives and senators would be measured for you know years to come and right. I distinctly recall at some point they had to adjourn and people just started leaving and I was so confused I start going on Twitter and I start seeing on Twitter people have breached the Capitol building. And it was one of those things that was just, it happened middle of the day, and it was just impossible to take your eyes off of. And 
I, I think the first thing I remember thinking is I, I had a conversation with some coworkers previously who, you know, back, back, back in the primary, back when I was kind of touting, touting the yeah. burn, uh, yeah. I was saying, you know, I don't think Trump is going to leave peacefully from office. And everyone, and they were telling me, this is, you're crazy. You're being yeah. hysterical. And then just to see that and be proven right nine months <laughs> after this conversation exactly. was, was just, you know, it was, it was both terrifying because, you know, what does this mean about our democracy? But, you know, from a personal selfish standpoint, it's, it was almost like we knew that this was going to happen. I don't know why mm-hmm. no one is, why, why, why we're so surprised. Yeah. Well, thanks, Peter. And also just to clarify for the listeners. So you, you were watching C-SPAN when this happened because I'm sure you were watching the electoral vote coming into Congress, right? This is, you know, just to kind of frame what yeah. was going on, right? All of the different electoral college votes coming in from different states were supposed to be opened and counted by a congressional session. Mike Pence was delegating as vice president. Uh, there's a whole lead up to this that we're going to talk about in just a little bit. And so I'm sure, Peter, I think you were probably prepping because we were going to do an episode originally on the Georgia primaries and, you know, the two months uh, be- in, in the lame duck period between the election and the inauguration of Joe Biden. And so you're watching C-SPAN and then you kind of just saw all this go down live, essentially. Basically, it was it was it was it was history. It was history in the moment. It was insane. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's well, that's ex- well, it's exciting, but it's also terrifying. But thank you for, for sharing that. Um, anybody, Rohan or Rob, do you guys want to share maybe a little bit of your reaction to the Capitol insurrection? I'll go because Peter was quite honest that he was patting himself on the back. Uh, I'll be honest, too. Um, <laughs> I thought it was very funny. <laughs> I mean, again, it's not good, but I was laughing a lot. <laughs> so um, I'll back up for a second. I was indeed here in Germany. Um, not, I think I was, I don't know, doing something else, having dinner or something. And I checked my phone and I had, I think one of you might have messaged something, but I had three missed calls from my friend Fabio. And I was like, like, oh no, did something happen? He's home <laughs> with his family. There's COVID, you know, I don't know. So I called him back. And then he was like, are you, uh, you need to watch uh, CNN. I forget what he said. You have to watch Capital. And I was like, why are you telling me about US politics? Like, I'm back in Germany now. Um, <laughs> and so I was always like, all right, let's see what everyone's talking about. And even when I saw the videos, I was like, that's kind of ridiculous that people are, you know, there's all these MAGA Trump supporters, a mix of, you know, QAnon, uh, you know, diet pill salesmen to, you know, legit, <laughs> you know, neo-Nazis trying to... Uh, start something, running around the Capitol, taking selfies, uh, beating up police officers, um, doing rituals on the Senate floor. Although when I, when I first checked the, the Twitter, um, we hadn't got to that stage yet. And I just, to be honest, I just was laughing. I was like, you know, I guess I'm the, I don't know, supposed to be the, uh, the, the left or communist uh, voice on the pod. And I was like, yep. This is what America's like. <laughs> Again, so I, I also felt like, yeah, it's all a sham. At least it looks like it now. You know, it's like um, the visuals were getting line up with, uh, with uh, again, some sense I had of, um, of the country. Um, mm-hmm. I've done a lot of research since then, and I don't want to downplay the significance, although I think that a lot of the narrative is like very self-serving on the part of uh, elite political actors and the media, but we can get into all that later. So that's yeah, my that's sure. my piece. Cool. Thank you, Rohan. How about you? Yeah, Rob, I agree with a lot. But <laughs> a lot of a lot of the initial reactions was the same. Originally, going into the day, you know, I didn't I didn't really want to follow you know the official sort of 
electoral vote, it was, you know, I didn't want to see Ted Cruz pounding his chest. And I was just like, <laughs> I'm out. I don't want to, I don't want to deal with this right now. Like, I, yeah. I, just, I don't care. There's not going to be any real consequences to them doing this potentially, at least in the terms of the, you know, blocking the election. So I was just like, I don't, I, I'm go- I'll read about it later. I don't want to actually waste my time actually watching it live. Yeah. First. yeah. Um, and then, you know, couple friends, I mean, you guys, a couple coworkers are like, what the hell is going down, you know, in the Capitol? And I was just like, wow, you know, that yeah. it, it really happened, you know, yeah. like, you know, it was, I was probably, my mindset going into this was very much like a doomsayer, like by no means was I thinking that this was yeah. impossible or like in the vein of Peter's coworkers saying like, you're crazy for thinking this because I really, I thought it too. But it was just a little bit of like, uh, yeah, this, yeah, it, it happened. It, 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 this is real. Like <laughs> these people yeah. like bought in so much that they're storming the Capitol. They, they really think the election was rigged. Um, Congress members were really sort of like, you know, supporting it too, you know? Yeah. 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 And, and Trump, even Trump probably was a little bit like, holy shit. Like this is for sure. Been chuckling a little bit too, but I don't know, but it, it was, I mean, obviously I think everyone is frustrated by it. Everyone, I agree with Rob that I think a lot of the narratives that come out of it are very self-serving, mm-hmm. um, both by the media and different, you know, political elites. I think, I think that's a hundred percent accurate. Um, and I think sometimes quite honestly, some of the rage we hear after the fact are a little, is a little bit conflated people don't really feel the rage in the heart. I mean, I, it is an angry thing, but I, I sometimes doubt how, how emotional some people are getting. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I'm, again, being pessimistic. Um, it was a horrible thing, but it can't be surprising. Like, yeah. the people who are angered about it are the people who are stoking the fire. So mm-hmm, I, don't, for sure. I don't really know how, how genuine some of all that stuff is. Well, that's true. And we'll talk about that too. We'll, I, I want to get into the media reaction as well. And I put that in our bullet points. So we'll definitely talk about that later in the episode. Because um, there was a lot of mean mugging and a lot of, you know, kind of like the self-righteous, what Rob is mentioning. So we'll get into some of that stuff. Um, I'll, just, I'll just share my reaction uh, fairly quickly with the listeners. So it was very interesting. I'm actually looking at my phone right now because I was having a WhatsApp conversation in the morning about the rally, the Trump rally in D.C. before anything happened. And I was having a conversation with one of my classmates at Yale. And she, um, she's a friend of mine and she does a lot of really interesting work uh, with trans communities and feminist movements in, in South America. And uh, I was talking to her about Donald Trump Jr.'s speech because I said to her, this is a me- message that I sent her at 1031 I said, so I'm watching Don Jr.'s speech at the Trump rally in D.C. right now. And I put like, you know, barf, barfy faces throwing up. Uh, I'm just struck at how transphobia is an integral part of their attack lines and political project. And I put he just went right in because there was a line where Trump Jr. was like, you know, saying something. Then he said, amen. And then he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I should say a woman. And I'm like, that's it was just so stupid. It was like his whole attack on like political correctness and the radical left and all that other bullshit and that was at 10 30 and i was like okay i'm done with this like i've only seen five minutes of this shit i don't want to look at anything else i don't want to hear trump speak at all like i'm just over it because don jr was like ah you know so i just completely tuned it out 
And then it was a Wednesday. My son had speech therapy. We went to get him at school and then we were with the therapist and that was like around noon and 1 p.m. And then I come back to the television at 2.30 and it's like all of these fucking white people are on the Capitol building and they're just going crazy. And I was like, what is going on? Like, how, how did we go from Trump Jr. just like, you know, in, in, on a stage saying that they were going to go to people's backyards? And I mean, I should have seen it coming, right? Uh, at least that day. But it was really interesting. And, and, and I just could not believe how surreal it was. But at the same time, I agree with all of you in that I wasn't surprised. I had also been seeing this coming for, for years. I mean, I remember having conversations with coworkers when I first moved to New York back in like 2018 and just saying like, what if Trump doesn't leave? And they're like, he's going to leave. He's going to leave. I'm like, no, no, no. Like, what if he just doesn't leave? Like, what if he just wants to like plant himself in the White House and not leave? Like, what if the army has to get involved? What if this shit has to... And people were, like, saying, you know, like, one of you guys mentioned, like, people thought I was being crazy. And I'm like, no. Like, this happens all the time. It's just a lot of... I think a lot of Americans who think that this only happens in, like, quote-unquote banana republics, like, they feel like, oh, that, you know, we can never have something like this here. And then this happens, and it's like, you know, yeah, totally, you know, we saw this coming, right? So Trump was... um, the, The Trump insurrection didn't surprise me in that regard. But what did surprise me is just, like how fast things escalated, like how how quickly people getting into the building. And then later we find out like people, you know, were unfortunately they were murdered. And then, you know, the plans that people had for what to do if they were able to kidnap certain people in government. So that was a little shocking about how fast it escalated. And um, I ended the day, I ended the day just taking my son to the park in the evening. And we just kind of hung out for a little bit. But I remember writing and hearing about the insurrection in the an NPR in the radio and I got and you were riding in the car he was in the back seat and I got flashbacks to like 9-11 and like riding in like my parents car when they picked me up from school to take me you know home and hearing about what was going on in the news and I was like part of me was like upset and angry because I was just like infuriating to see what these people were about but the other part of me was just like really sad about like this might be a new normal like you know our, our, our kids might grow up in like a future where like Elections are contested all the time and it's violent and it's aggressive and, you know, and I don't want that. But, you know, at the same time, it was right there. It was very clear what was going to happen. This man has been warning us about it for like six months. But, um, you know, anyway, so I had a lot of negative feelings. Rob, you going to say something? I just want to say one thing before we get into the, the lead up to the event, which is that I don't want to call this a mea culpa. But I will say the three of you, maybe we even talked about it on the last episode, were more... I feel like I've always been the one to downplay the coup threat. And at the same time, it would have been better if I said something like this could happen, but there won't be a coup because, I mean, Joe Biden's president of the United States right now. All is, yeah. all is well in, uh, <laughs> in, in the political land, so the story goes. Um, I, that would have been the best thing to say, but I do think that the left, because I think a lot of people on the left were um, saying, yeah, all of the like fascist Trump rhetoric is hyperbolic in order to make you think that Trump is this unique threat to the American project and that we are the ones, we, the good Democrats or whoever are defending you. And I still think that that is, I don't think that a coup happened or even was close to happening, but I think that the left has to explain very precisely what uh, their story is of what happened because I do think everyone else is like, oh, all of the people who are saying that something big is going to happen and they're going to try to overthrow the government, uh, you definitely seem more right right now. So 
um, I will do my best to uh, to explain my position and try to report, do do a little um, self reflection. Yeah, so explain how to interpret this, right? Um, well, that's good. So it was a good intro, and uh, just to give a quick rundown then to the episode, we're gonna just give a brief summary of what happened leading up to January six. Although most of you probably already know this from following the news in the U.S., uh, we're gonna talk a little bit about QAnon. Uh, which is obviously a huge undercurrent to this uh, that spans even beyond the Trump presidency, both in the, into the past and into the future. And then also talk about the Georgia primary, because we cannot ignore the fact that this happened the day after the Georgia primary, when the Democrats gained control of the Senate. And that was the big news in the morning before anything actually happened. We all thought that the news cycle was going to be about the Democratic upset in Georgia and then this happened, and uh, very much so. Like, I mean, these two events are connected. Um, we'll talk about the insurrection itself, analyze it, as Rob just uh, mentioned and announced, you know, kind of give our own interpretations and think about how this happened and why this happened and, you know, how do we interpret it. And then a little bit about the media responses to this and how the, the political world has responded. And then just close the episode thinking about what will happen, what will happen when the, in the impeachment trial coming up. In February, and you know what this means for the future of Trumpism, of the Republican, the Republican Party, and the United States. You know, just interesting, interesting to think about how this changes or doesn't. You know, the the society that we live in. Um, so, is there anything anybody wants to say before we get started with just kind of the summary of of how this how we ended up here? So, um, you know, I don't want to make this too long because we talked about it at length uh, in the last episode that we did together, the last part of season one. But really, um, you know, I think what's important, kind of the big takeaways of this is that there had been warning signs that something like this could happen at least within the last year. Uh, if not, I mean, if you're someone who really analyzes Trump's behavior and just and more so than his behavior, like the people who support him, what they believe in and how, you know, what they're capable of mobilizing for, maybe this wasn't a shock to you, but at least Trump himself has been alluding to something like this happening since the summer of last year, of, of 2020, um, when he would refuse consistently to acknowledge or, or to you know commit himself to allowing for a peaceful transfer of power where he'd lose the election. He didn't even fathom the, the uh, possibility of losing the election. He always said he was going to win. We talked about it in the last episode, how he defunded the post office um, to make voting by mail more complicated. Uh, we also spoke about the the mail-in ballots, all that controversy on election night, which turned into election week. And right away, we begin to see the um, the challenging of election results. On that very night, November 3rd, I remember in Trump's speech, and it's actually part of this introduction uh, to this episode that you guys heard in the intro. Um, you know, Trump says on election night, he says, if you count all the legal ballots, I win. If you count the, Ill the illegal ballots, then they're stealing the election and I lose. So right away, we saw on November 3rd, you know, a president who was refusing to acknowledge his laws. Then he went through every single play in the book, literally, to undermine the results. Um, there were lawsuits that were filed in individual states. Uh, he invited legislator, legislators from different states to come to the White House to try to intimidate them or, or coerce them into maybe voting some of these, uh, choosing to not vote with some of these electors or to throw some of these votes out. Um, there were challenges in the court system. Uh, Trump was hoping to take this to the Supreme Supreme Court, but nobody really even took these seriously because there weren't any legal arguments. And, you know, I, I think you guys saw, like, I mean, 
just the legal part of this was ridiculous. Like the, the, the witnesses that they had on stage who seemed like they were just drunk or stoned or something. Uh, like Rudy, that woman. Rudy Giuliani melting before our eyes. Yeah. Like, yeah just exactly. opened the Ark of the Covenant. Right. And, uh, you know, having that press conference in front of that, that porn shop or whatever the hell that was, that adult <laughs> film store, it was just like ridiculous. It was just, I could not believe that, you know. Then, then they decide to add two brand new lawyers who, who even, ex, who, who I think to, to yeah. the same extent here, accelerated some of the language around it. Things, some of the things Cindy Powell and mm-hmm. Lynn Wood were saying were, were not only just bonkers, but, but created clear, like were clear conspiracy theories that they legitimized by being part of the Trump legal team, which, I mean, let's, let's not forget the fact that they decide to add two brand new, absolutely crazy characters at the end of the Trump at the end of the Trump presidency, that probably exactly. had more of an impact on January sixth than than some of the you know familiar faces that we know in the Trump organization. Mm-hmm. And I'll even say Giuliani too. I feel like just just having someone like Giuliani from the beginning is was all meant for theater. There's no yeah. <laughs> there's nothing else. And it that's was, what we it, but that's what we all thought it was going to be right because yeah. there were a lot of there was some news coverage about how Trump was profiting from these fundraisers that he was doing between November third and January. He was like, you know, sending Peter, you're on the email list, right? You were getting all these emails about chipping, you know, they're stealing our freedom or whatever. It was a very, I, I think uh, Trump, the, the language after the election, Trump, not only were the emails more frequent, he sent, I think, in the course of two weeks after the election, like 200 emails to his followers. Oh oh and the, the, the language was clearly more violent, illegal votes, fight um you know there there's like the, the the fight thing or you know some some of the the very active you know violent language that you know you would mm-hmm. expect from war not a peaceful transition of power so it, it's not just you know what he's saying out loud and like we know what he says in his suites we know what he says um yeah. you know elsewhere but he he definitely tried to to you know he definitely had that us versus them mindset in that he was continuing to instill in private without, you know, the, the challenge of anyone else. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of uh, unsurprising, again, to, to see it escalate to this. If you, if you got that inside view of what, you know, Trump ends up sending his followers. And I will say this, like theater, theater doesn't mean just for a show for like monetary. Like it very much is a tool to like incite the people. I mean, it's, reading some of the reports that came out, it was very clear that Trump's real motivation was to stay in office, you know? Like, that was a very, very real goal that he had to, yeah. s- to some extent. Exactly. Like, just because you're using theater doesn't I mean that, that's a powerful tool to actually rally people up. And it worked, you know? I mean, that's what it mm-hmm. did, you know? So, yeah. I don't know. And I think, to Rohan's point and to both of your points, I think both of these things are happening together, right? So, we have a cross current of that kind of that fundraising angle, like Trump, you know, still trying to gripped to power over the GOP, showing them how much money he can raise, uh, maybe even for his own legal fund, you know, for all the all the stuff that he's got coming down in New York, for example, with the district court, etc. So there's that, but at the same time, to Rohan's point, there is this desire by Trump. And look, and people will, will debate this, and they'll say, um, how do you, how are you so sure that he, he himself wanted to stay in power? Maybe people just misinterpreted him, or maybe it was just right-wing extremists, like, twisting his rhetoric, and the thing is, there's two, and, and I'm glad you mentioned this, Rohan, because it gets us to kind of move in, into January here. Um, there's two kind of peak points, crescendo points that happen 
uh, before the insurrection itself. The first is in December when there's these news of Trump having some sort of private meeting with these military leaders and the mil- and, and basically the Joint Chiefs of Staff have to say like, you, Mr. President, like you can't do that. Like, and I don't know if it was about martial law, like implementing martial law over the country and using the military to like come in and like somehow be involved in like this, this ballot counting process or recount process. I don't remember. I mean, there were so many stories that came out, which to be honest with Donald Trump, you can just assume all of it is real because there is no hyperbole with this guy. Um, so, but there were, there were some really serious talks that he was having with the military and the military never supported him in, in any of this, which is important. I think Rob will talk about that too, maybe in, in, you know, his analysis, but, um, you know, it's really interesting to think about how, to Rohan's point, he did want to stay in power because, so that was the first peaking point, the crescendo point. The second point was the Sunday before the Georgia elections, Sunday, January, what was it? Third, I think, fourth. Um, Trump has that phone call with the Georgia uh, Attorney General and like the pe- the people at the at the Georgia basically state government pressuring them to dig up, dig up these votes in in Georgia to overturn the results and to give him the state in you know in the presidential election and it was just like a you know again we thought that that was going to be the smoking gun like we thought that that was going to be what was going to take him down like he was actually on the phone soliciting political favors, you know, threatening. He was verbally, verbally threatening these people. And then, you know, two days later, we have the insurrection, right? So I think it, it is true. I think, uh, I do believe that he did want to stay in power at some point for some whatever reason. Maybe, you know, maybe it's a personal reason. Maybe he's just like a psychotic person. But um, I definitely do think there was an intentionality behind his actions, for sure. So, um, but that was kind of the big stuff I wanted to go over with the lead up to January 6th. Um, I do want to spend some time on the Georgia runoffs because that's immediately before. And I think these two events are connected. But if you guys want to jump in and add something, go right ahead. Uh, I just want to add two things. One is like on the ground, because in hindsight, this takes on more significance. um, But it definitely is part of the story. Um, There was a meeting. There was a big rally in D.C., not as big as January 6th. I want to say sometime in December. And there was a little bit of, um, you know, street fighting between Antifa and, and MAGA. But it was pretty, I think, evenly balanced sometime in December. Um, but throughout December, there were ongoing Stop the Steal, um, Hold the Line protests. And in Salem, Oregon, on December 21st, the Capitol wasn't breached, but there were people who broke the front doors to it. Um, and there was, it, it was like a mi- in miniature what happened in D.C. Um, just two weeks later. So on the ground, you definitely see that this is a um, the far right is like mobilizing to do something like this. Um, the FBI and the Capitol Police, both and who knows, maybe they're just covering their ass, uh, said that warnings were given about this uh, rally on January sixth, and that a large crowd was expected, and you know, and something should be done about it. Um, and I think we all knew that there was a, something going on on January sixth. I remember. I, yeah, like my parents. I mean, Trump tw- tweeted about it. Yeah, yeah he tweeted well, that, about it. Yeah, <laughs> that's the second thing I wanted to say. Just so that's what's going on on the ground, and then the Trump spectacle. There's a December 19th tweet, uh, which says he's talking about some report that says it shows it's statistically impossible that he lost the 2020 election, and then quote, "Big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Be there, will be wild." <laughs> which, I mean, yeah. I guess it was. He wasn't lying. He <laughs> was like, calling on people to go wild, and you know. <laughs> You, you could like point that out as like evidence that he incited it, but it's like only it's like specific Trumpian incitement, right? Like, 
Yeah. And, and, and the second point that happened, um, this is quoted by the New York Times, and who knows, you know, there's a big industry of Trump inside journalism, you know, anonymous sources say, but apparently he did tell Mike Pence, and I'm quoting directly from Trump here, uh, quote, t- trying to convince him to, you know, not certify the, uh, the votes, quote, you can either go down in history as a patriot or you can go down in history as a pussy. Yeah. So that was Trump's final call to Mike Pence. And like, that is his big plan to, you know, do a coup is to call Mike Pence a pussy. And so that is, that's existing side by side with, you know, state capitals being protested every week by armed groups, all leading up to January 6th. Right. And that's a good point, Rob. So just like Trump has like these, you know, these points of, you know, where he's really giving us these warnings, these high warnings of what he's going to do, right? These crescendos in his behavior. People themselves are organizing around this. Social media is being organized around this. I mean, people have been absorbing years of QAnon and, you know, the real fake news and, like, conspiracy theories, you know, since, like, the beginning of this term, since Barack Obama, right? So this is, like, years in the making for some people. And then, you know, there's all these layers that go into it. Um, So you guys are all absolutely right. Um, So then, so, Peter, let's get into um, the Georgia runoff. I know we have a, a wonk segment, com- segment coming up, up here because it's so interesting what happened in Georgia. Um, and we can't ignore the fact that this was uh, one of the big stories. This was the big story the day before the insurrection. And so, you know, maybe tell us a bit about what happened in Georgia, how it happened, and then we can just talk about how these two events were connected. So the first thing I want to note is um, focused a lot on the Purdue versus the, the David Purdue, the incumbent versus John Osef, who ended up winning the Democratic, um, the, the Democrat running for the that seat in the Senate, because it's interesting because it's basically the closest we can get to a almost a uh, kind of analysis of how Trump's actions affected voters in certain in certain you know states, because. In those two months, Trump is consistently in Georgia. He is saying that the vote, that the election was stolen. He's saying that, you know, there's rife voter fraud. He calls the Secretary of State, who, despite the Secretary of State's, the GOP Secretary of State's best efforts in Georgia, cannot convince Trump that this election wasn't stolen. And everyone's worried, would Georgia, would, would, would GOP vote, votes be depressed in Georgia because of this? I don't know if we could say it's been depressed. You probably would need to look at, at um, you know, how other uh, how other runoffs have played out. But in this runoff, it was clear that it did not. It, the GOP vote was significantly less than what you know the Dems were seeing. So, Osef in particular, you know, in terms of retention of votes from his run in uh, in the November versus January he retained about 96 to 90 95 to 96% of his vote and it didn't really matter if it was you know democratic or gop leaning uh, purdue in both democrat and gop leaning districts saw that retention go down to 89% so you know for an incumbent you know that probably wins him more often than not so there's a question of is this really just the Democrats being very mobilized, or is it more related to GOP um, repressed voting? And I think it's a mix of both. I do think you you know you do see it, but it, it just goes to show you know Trump's strategy of saying the election was stolen. I don't think it wins him a lot of votes at the end of the day. It's actually a very bad strategy, and you can kind of see. And I think one of the things that people really ought to be saying is not that a coup could never happen here. 
it's really a coup didn't happen here because the people who are doing the coup did it in a very incompetent way had it been anyone with a bigger strategy a better plan who had known how to use you know the actual institutions in place to enforce this coup i i mean i think we would be talking a little bit more about how this is a turning point in democracy to a much more significant degree it's just it's clear that trump's plan of complaining about the election hurt the gop mm -hmm. more than it helped yeah mm -hmm. I, I want to piggyback on that because too like if trump had been planning this for years instead of being reactionary like if he was actually a competent person you know with a plan yeah like, the military wouldn't have said no because he would have slowly cycled people through you know with that intention like mike if he was better about picking a mike pence like like this this you know, it, it could have been a lot worse, you know, it really could have been, you know, and I think we, we're actually lucky that Trump is as incompetent as he is, just because yeah. like, the guy is incapable of doing a long plan, a lot of the skills that exactly. he has is kind of living up, living in the moment and like inciting emotions, but, mm -hmm. you know, that's not going to let you, you know, that'll, that'll give you what you, what you got earlier and get you the, the outcome of what you saw in Georgia, but it won't. Mm -hmm. It won't actually structurally, you know, let him do anything real and sort of break and change the system, too. But I just wanted to throw that in there. Mm -hmm. One thing I want to add, just because Peter also mentioned Georgia, like, even if they wanted to do a coup, if everyone was on board, they wouldn't want Trump to be the guy because they don't like Mitch McConnell, all the elites in the Republican Party. They don't want to deal with Donald Trump. They don't want to deal with like a megalomaniac exactly. game show host. So like even if they stole their like voting irregularities, there were voting machines not plugged in in Georgia in 2018. And then in 2020, they're like, we're not going to steal it for you, though, because we don't want you, you know? So yeah. like I just I mean, I know that's my pessimistic side, but like. That's, I feel like, always needs to be brought up when Trump comes in. The Republican elite has been looking for a break from, from Trump, and the Trump's mm -hmm. diehard supporters, I mean, kind of played into their hands. Yeah, this gives them an out. Yeah. No, but that's a good point, Rob. And it's like, I hear what a lot of the conversation is centering around is that a lot of this lead up to January 6th was pretty self-serving on Trump's part, particularly whatever Trump did was really for his benefit, not really for the party's benefit even if that was kind of what he was trying to, you know, discursively, rhetorically accomplish. And then to Rob's point, it's like, um, you know, a very interesting point that comes up is that, you know, Republicans, you know, and in the old days, and even sometimes right now, the Democratic machine as well, right? There is, um, you know, rigging of elections that does happen, particularly locally, right, to keep certain people in power, to keep certain people out of power, so, I mean, the, the parties know how to do this, but nobody nobody wanted to stick with Trump and actually do this for him, right? Nobody, like, nobody locally cooperated or nationally, with the exception of, like, dumbasses like Ted Cruz and, you know, Hawley, because they want to build their own careers from this. And so what Republicans did is they kind of superficially went along with it. Uh, you know, he, need, he has every right to call for an audit at the local level or whatever. They went along with it for as far as they could. And then once it turned into this, you know, then they get to play the self-righteous card. And to Rob's point, they get to walk away from Trump and his hardcore supporters and, you know, kind of not be blamed, even though some of them already are getting a lot of heat, um, you know, for kind of selling out on him. Right. So this is very, very interesting. Um, Peter, do you want to have do you have any more wonkage that you want to share with us about Georgia? Yeah, I, I think you, you, we would be remiss to talk about Georgia and not mention the name Stacey Abrams and the great work that her and a lot of other organizers did in Georgia. Um, one of the big stories going into the night was 
will Stacey Abrams and the, the Georgia organizers be able to bring out the black vote? Uh, looking at counties that are minority white uh, and comparing, you know, let's look at, you know, uh, Senator Warnock, uh, how he did versus, you know, Joe Biden, since he, you know, won over Lofler by a much higher margin than Osef did over Purdue. Um, again, Warnock coming in as a, a running against the incumbent who is uh, uh, assigned by was the, the, the governor of um, uh, Brad Kemp, uh, Kelly Loeffler, uh Warnock in, in minority white counties, so likely majority black counties, Warnock had an improvement on Biden's margin of an average of 2.4%. So that means Biden, like Biden versus Trump, the margin there, Warnock beat by an average of 2.4%, which is substantial. And in majority white counties, you know, Warnock also improved by an average of 0.63%. But, you know, some, some of that could be assigned to the, you know, GOP depression. It's clear that in, in my opinion, it's clear that black voters came out in droves for Warnock especially, and, and presumably that helped Osef as well. A lot less split ticket. I mean, if you look at the differences between the vote counts, it's very, like, it's 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 small. It's not so big that, you know, you would have had a, you know, a Purdue Warnock um, Senate, which is what I was expecting. But it, we would be remiss to say, you know, that there, there was not a lot of help from the black voters. I do think a lot of that did have to come into play with, with uh, you know, a lot of economic issues um, that, that do come into play here. You know, that the $2,000 check thing that, you know, I think should 100% be coming through, um, that played a big role. Uh, but it, it's clear that there was a strategy for Georgia to get more black voters out. That helped a lot. Now, the question is, can this be replicated in other states? TBD, but it did lay a pretty solid groundwork that you don't have to flip Republican voters to Democrat. You just have to uh, reach out to more people who are more likely to vote Democrat in order to win. And I think you know that has to be a key message for the Democrats going forward if they are going to make any change that is meaningful at a at a federal level. That's good. And that's good to know because, you know, Biden's narrative is like, well, we have to appeal to both sides. And it's like, well, really, if you just reach out to the right people and you get you get the right communities out and you turn out the base, um, maybe you can pull it off as well. So that's interesting. Right. And uh, interesting to hear that people were more excited about Warnock than Biden and, and, and Ossoff, which is, I mean, not surprising, but just also very cool. Um, anybody else want to add anything else on the on the Georgia runoffs? I'm actually I'm curious, Peter. I mean. You know, even like 90% retention from the Republicans. I mean, honestly, that's a little bit higher than I expected. I don't know. Do you know? Do you know what it looks like in like a normal election? Kind of cold. It's probably here. closer to 50%. Yeah, 50%. I mean, just across the board, across the board. This It's usually 50% across the board. You, yeah. That's on the high end. I think I was seeing something like, you know, the last runoff they had had about 2.2 million votes for people running off. And here you're looking at 4.2. So, yeah. you know, you take into account population growth, of course, maybe it's it, that was closer to 60 percent, but near 90 percent across the board is fairly ridiculous. It's it's yeah, I, it's maybe it speaks to kind of the fact that we as just a populace have become more politically active because of Trump. And that's not something we should lose going forward. Or, you know, it's a testament to, again, the organizers down in Georgia. Uh, Stacey Abrams is one of them, but she is not the only one who's doing their the work there. 
and it lays the groundwork for what Democrats should be doing in the future. I think that's what we're hoping we'd be talking about here is a Democrat win and how Democrats should use this going forward. And I think it's 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 not about those. And I think, you know, Rob is going to be happy. I've finally come to truth here. It's not about getting those people who, you know, are generally conservative to realize, hey, Democrats are the right people to vote for. It's about getting the people who are going to vote Democrat out to vote and making them feel engaged that the people that they're running, that, that, that are running for the Democrats are going to actually answer their needs as opposed to, you know, address the needs of some other like groups such as the super elite, rich people, big tech, whatever, throw your bogeyman out there. No, that's good. And that's, that's, that's totally true. And I mean, um, also, the, one of the big lessons here is to make voting more accessible, right? And turning out people, I think that's, I think that's part of what you mean too, Peter, by turnout, is just allow, allow as many people to be able to vote as possible, right? Vote by mail. You know, we've talked about this in the last episode, but the more accessible the vote is, the better this is as well. Um, I know you, you have to go soon, Peter, but I want to move on to the next segment then and get some, um, get some last-minute wonkage in here if possible, um, cause you were talking about now moving into the insurrection, right? Because I don't think it's a coincidence that we have the Georgia runoffs in the night before. And then, you know, that next day, Trump and the family and Giuliani and the people who went to the rally are more inspired than ever to really go after the quote unquote swamp, seeing now it, it completely slipped out of their control. So, um, you want to give us a little bit of that, that mini wonkage on, uh, you know, basically what happened in the insurrection sure so for the insurrection i think the what happened during is is very interesting because i think this this goes to show you know what is the future of the gop it's interesting that the future of the gop is very much aligned to the trump voters because what you're finding is the people who ended up supporting the objection the people who wanted to throw out these votes they're coming from very republican areas i mean there are a couple of people who are coming from areas where, you know, they, uh, they, uh, that are typically Democrat, you know, uh, Garcia, California, I think 48 comes to mind. Um, Jimenez, Florida, I think he just beat Debbie, uh, Mercosul Powell. I think it was Mm -hmm. Florida 26. Uh, Lauren Boebert, who is going to eventually become Colorado's, uh, Sarah Palin, uh, is, is coming from a place where she barely won um, an open, but generally Republican seat, but again, potentially very unpopular figure in, in the party uh, in two years. So it's it's going to be interesting. I think it's too early to see the political impacts from this, but from from the most part, it's not, it almost seems like it's it, it shows Trump's invariable stain on the GOP that these heavily Republican parties care more about, heavily Republican you know, counties care more about appeasing the president than sticking to constitutional conservative values. Mm-hmm. So that's fascinating. So, so we're seeing then that the people in Washington, D.C. that they were people from really heavily Republican areas in different states, most a lot of them in the South and the West, but there were people from the North, right? Minnesota, for example. Um, yeah, that's really fascinating. Uh, Rob Rohan, do you guys have anything to add to this? I'm curious to see if you like looked at stats like afterwards on like like Trump Trump's like approval rating differences and like what your thoughts on that were. You know, I, I did. I will give a very brief wonk there. Um, overall, looking at some of the higher rated, um, you know, uh, popularity kind of popularity polls, the the approval polls. Let's look at Marist. 
for example, between December 6th and January 7th, there was a 5% drop in his approval rating. It went from 43% to 38% and a 6% increase in his um, disapproval rating. So 52% to 58%. And then if you look more at the numbers, it's interesting. It's, it's Republicans that drove a lot of the change there. So Republicans uh, generally had an approval rating of uh, 14%. I think it went down to 7 I think that's how it worked. And then seven um, percent approval, or sorry, seven percent disapproval to fourteen percent disapproval. Uh, independents actually had a similar similar shift, um, but it was not as significant as Republicans. And what's most interesting is you really just generally saw uh, deterioration in those approvals broadly uh, in, in income classes. So, you know, if you're thinking of generally Republican, you know. Uh, demographics, you know, less like on an economic scale, everything kind of went down for Trump. Non-college grads, it went down by like 10%, it looks like. Uh, white people, it went down by about 9%. And rural areas, it went down by 7%, his approval rating. So it, it, it clearly had ramifications across the board, not just kind of the outrage of the liberal elites on the coasts. Yeah, that this is what I was trying to kind of get at, because it one, it didn't seem like it went down that much. Because I think when you said like a lot of these participation, the participation from the insurrectionists were coming from these different GOP districts, you know, you would think that if it was, if it really was just isolated to that, I would have actually expected a much higher drop off in his approval rating. I was actually surprised that it was still holding at 35%. It was the lowest that it's ever been, but it wasn't really, you know, and percentage points matter quite a bit, but I mean, 35 percentage points is still kind of insane. I don't know if there's like this rolling average that's being taken in the approvals, but still felt that people looked at it, they didn't care, maybe they blamed the Dems, maybe they still, but it wasn't, it still didn't feel isolated. It still felt like, you know, 35% of whatever that polling average was, was still supportive. And it still feels like it's, it's, it's supportive across his base too. I mean, across Republicans, it's about like eighty percent still. So yeah. you know, we're, we're we're not looking at something like, yeah. It, it, there's there's still a huge level of partisanship that this this is continuing to show. Again, I don't think this is something. Again, this is not something to to an early point. This is not something we should be surprised about. I think the only surprise is that the the only good thing out of this is that the person who was trying to do this was so utterly incompetent at what he was trying to do that we're talking about a failed coup as opposed to a successful one. Okay, I, I actually do have to drop, guys, but keep on talking, keep on revolutionizing. Thank you, Peter, for being on. Hopefully we can get yeah, you thanks back. thanks for the insight, man. See you guys on the flip side. So Peter gave us some really great um, wonkage here, really fascinating stuff, and I'm sure we're going to come back to some of this. I know I have some points to make, too, uh, just looking at his numbers. But just kind of this idea that even within Republicans, among Republicans, I mean, Trump is still like commanding about, I mean, I'm not a mathematician or a statistician, but like maybe about a third, a little bit over like a third of Republicans that are really kind of still in in his corner. Uh, And these, according to these numbers, which by the way, were like a month ago, which now I'm sure that number has risen probably because people just forget so quickly. But um I'm sure we'll talk about this when we talk about the future of the GOP and and Trumpism. Um, But yeah, so uh, moving into the insurrection, right, and talking about, like, 
you know, just kind of analysis of the insurrection, how we want to analyze it. I mean, Peter already gave us a really great statistical analysis, but just kind of now looking at it kind of politically, kind of just philosophically, um, what do we make of like all this stuff? <laughs> like just like what happened, right? And I'm laughing because I just like, I cannot believe that this is the conversation we're having because um, it, it all seems like, like I said, I wasn't surprised. I just never actually thought it was going to happen. Like, you know, when it happened, I wasn't surprised, but I just wasn't picturing myself actually like seeing this in my lifetime, you know, really taking, you know, taking place in the United States. So um, let's talk a little bit about this. And maybe, I mean, we have some notes here on the, you know, interference saga with Trump Giuliani. Uh, We can go back and maybe talk a little bit about that or maybe just move into kind of the neo-Nazis, America first, QAnon people, uh, and maybe get into the dynamics of the, the underground dynamics of the insurrection. Um, yeah, so I have a few notes here. I'll just try to work through because I think that in general, I think that Trump's role is a little overstated. Um, I mean, I, I don't think, I think Trump was probably telling the truth when he was like, oh, you know, you should, you know, overthrow Like you should, uh, you know, show them and make sure I'm still president. And then he's like, Oh, but you know, our beautiful p- police officers don't hurt them. Like, I do think Trump has a bit of a distance and at least a little bit of a, a disdain for this, like, hardcore. Like, he's into the more, like, upper crust MAGA, like, you know, the people who go to Mar a Lago and stuff. And <laughs> I don't think he wants to get his hands dirty with, like, um, you know, like people on the ground who are, like, ready to. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, torch Nancy Pelosi's office or something. Like, not even from like a tactical point of view. Like, oh, I don't get my hands dirty. I think he just doesn't. He's like, yeah, that, that, I, I'm not into that. I'm, he watches TV all the time. He's just a news critic. He's just a you know, he'd, yeah. he'd rather be tweeting at Vanity Fair. So, I just want to say that again. And I don't like because I think most of the Trump instigated it is like trying to like nail Trump down on a. Everyone has a very. Uh, uh, prosecutorial mood right like uh like oh we got trump on this you know we're gonna because it's all goes back to then you're gonna impeach and double asterisk on his legacy or whatever it is um so i want to set trump aside a little bit because we all know (laughs) how terrible he is like i think we're all in agreement i want to get at how organized exactly was this movement because i also Mm -hmm. disagree with people who say that it was like overly planned or strategic or because we've said a lot okay but for trump then this group like if they had a different organized leader then they could have done something but i think that part of the appeal of this movement whatever it is the maga assembly i think there were some small organized groups in there but on the whole it was mostly just the maga people there to you know do the thing like they just it's quarantine they want to they believe strongly in QAnon or whatever it is and they want to go show up wave their flags take photos post them on facebook and have yeah. a good time it was like um, a, like going to a football game for them or something like that yeah exactly or going to a yeah. going to it's like you know coachella but for the maga people like it's reminds what you me do. of that got, atlantic article that i sent you guys where the guy the author is like yeah, they were the insurrection, but then when they went into the Capitol, like a lot of them stayed in the line and like didn't turn, you know, they stayed within like the demarcated line, right? Yeah. Yeah. So on that really quick, um, this is just some, I, the let, the, I saw several different numbers. No one can analyze the crowd size. I guess it's very hard to do. Um, 
but it looks like about 10,000 people were there. And the FBI has arrested 150 so far and is looking at, from what I saw yesterday in the Washington Post, 800 people. Wow. They said 800 people were in the Capitol in an illegal way. So even then, that's 8%, if I'm doing my math right, <laughs> of you know the group. Which even then, like if 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 only eight percent of the group are the like leaders, that's not that coherent a movement, right? Like if if you're like a, if I complete uh, uh, spitballing here, but if you're a neo-Nazi in the crowd in the back and you see people breaking the Capitol, you're probably going to force your way to the front and get in there. So I'm I'm assuming most of the people who didn't get in were like, well, I'm not going to force my way up there. I'm going to watch from the from the crowd. So I do think we need to take that into account when we, when we assess like what are the dynamics of this movement. All that said, I think you can pick out um, the Proud Boys have kind of become a media uh, character, especially in the like liberal. The media darling media. of the far yeah, right. They problem. are. There was one um, reporter. I forget what she, who she was. I think it was now this or something. And she was, um, you know, looked like a progressive woman perhaps in her 50s and she was singling out the there were these proud boys and they had megaphones and they seemed like they were coordinating everything and i'm sure they were trying to do something but i just don't think the proud boys are like you know like a bolshevik party organizing these masses like come on Mm -hmm. give me a break um i do think that there were some individuals uh some people who were um maybe even armed i don't think i don't know how much analysis has been done on that who actually had guns but DC is a pretty, I mean, it's pretty strict. Most of them are coming across state borders. And I just don't, it's certainly not as armed as a lot of those protests we've seen in other states like Michigan or Oregon or something. So that also has to be taken into account. I would say in my kind of judgment on it, some individuals came very prepared. Uh, I do think that uh, if you've seen that girl, uh, Riley Williams, who uh, was is alleged to have tried to sell Nancy Pelosi's laptop to the <laughs> Russians, um, yeah, there's video of her like she seemed to know where Nancy Pelosi's office was and like we're directing uh-huh, uh-huh. people there, but like that doesn't make it like a coherent movement. That's just one person like kind of steering a mob. And I do think that we have to emphasize the mob aspect more of this event. Uh, how a mob could just break into the Capitol and you know put their feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk, steal AOC's shoes, like leave a note saying the justice is coming on Mike Pence's desk. That all has to be analyzed, but I just want to calibrate the words we use. Because one last thing, I I don't know if this is controversial, anything to say, but a coup, and I define a coup as like Donald Trump remains president. Some elected official is can't take their role, whether they're killed or something. Like Nancy Pelosi's kidnapped and you know there's a different speaker of the house. A coup like that, I would say was, basically had a 0% chance of happening, even when they were in the building. That doesn't mean there couldn't be some sporadic violence or something. I mean, there was death. There were several deaths, right? But like when we're talking like, yeah, Donald Trump remaining president or something at that level, I think it was basically never got above 0% within a rounding error. Um, I don't know what you think about that. but I, And I say all that just because I think we should be precise about what you know happened exactly. So that's that's my bit to start. Yeah, and I, I agree with a lot of what you said, Rob. I think you said a lot, which I, I want to take take different points and kind of try to add a little bit of my flavor on it, even though I worry I might say the same thing. But one, Trump is a leader for these people. I mean, I think to some extent, like Trump is a little bit of a leader of convenience for these different, you know, cells and groups. Like he doesn't, 
it's like he tolerates them and that's enough, you know? And I think that's why so like the media was also big on the Proud Boys saying, like quoting Proud Boys members saying that Trump was a weak and he failed them or whatever. I don't think there was necessarily a surprise of it, but it was a convenient, you know, outlet for them. And he wasn't a leader for them, but he, he created a, a tolerance, you know, because he liked people voting for him because he's a narcissist and he doesn't care who votes for him, essentially. He just wants to make sure that all of his supporters feel warm and cuddly so that they keep keep supporting him. Um, so I don't think, I think, I, I agree with you, like, Trump would much rather be the Mar-a-Lago, you know, guy. But at the same time, you know, I think, I, I think you're also right in your assessment of sort of the coordination at, at the Capitol. I mean, it, I don't want to say, it wasn't a free-for-all. I don't think anyone's saying, like, saying that. It was definitely different cells, different groups, you know, a lot of people going there just to sort of, you know, have, you know, college game day, like, go, go whatever the heck. Tailgating. They probably tailgated that yeah, shit, tailgate, too. Yeah, tailgate, Coachella, tailgate. you know, yeah. drink something, <laughs> like, whatever. Like, it, a lot of it, I'm sure t- uh, people were like that. But I think you can't deny that, like, different groups that went there you know, likely went there, you know, whether that was a group of 10, a group of like 20, a group of 100, I don't know, you know, the problem, you know, actually had some type of coordination and thought, you know what I mean? It was like different cells coming together with a different plan. And then when people were looking at it, you know, from the outside looking in, it was like, oh, see, that person's a little bit coordinated, you know, like those 10 people are coordinated with each other and what they're doing. And I think, you know, it's like, there are these mini cells that kind of came out with no coordination across them whatsoever. But I still think that's a scary thing, you know, because the more and more this stuff happens, the more momentum it can gain. I mean, it'll be the same people showing up to every single thing over and over again, the casuals included, so to say. You know, like the more this happens, the more coordination will come of it, you know, and that's the scary thing, you know. Um, and I think that's what we have to sort of look out for, nip in the bud, you know, like, um, you know, yes, it's it's safe now, you know, I don't know how many steps to the point where there is more central coordination, it feels like there's still a lot to actually happen. But, you know, it's definitely like, in order to get to that path, you got to start somewhere. And this, this, that felt like what that start would have to look like. Yeah, so I like that last point that you added, Rohan, and I want to connect to that and then kind of talk about some other stuff and, and continue on this conversation though. Um, because, and this reminds me a little bit too of what Peter was saying as well. And that, you know, Trump, yeah, you know, Trump is not like this evil mastermind who knew exactly who all these groups are and were and like was talking to the leaders of it and whatever. He, he doesn't even know who, like, yeah. that. I, I sincerely think that that moment at the debate where he's like, who do you want me to denounce? Like, tell me, who do you want me, you know, it's because he doesn't have any fucking clue, like, who these groups are. Like, like Rick Perry and the EPA and that shit. You guys remember yeah. that? Yeah, we yeah, didn't yeah. remember the three agencies. And he's like, oops, right? <laughs> like, that's exactly what I think Trump was, was really at in that mental space. So, yeah. So I agree. I think we need to put Trump into perspective for sure. At the same time, Rohan, to your point, you're right. These are a bunch of little cells, right, coming together. And I, I messaged Rob about this uh, during the week. There was a historian from New Chicago on NPR on Wednesday, um, Kathleen, uh, Kathleen Ballou. And she studies right-wing movements and militarization at UChicago. She's an assistant professor there. She's graduated from Yale like 10 years ago, and I think she just started recently. And um, 
she was talking about how she would divide it into like three kind of broad strands of people who were there. There were just like the spectators, like what you were like the people who didn't go in, the people who were just there for like you know selfies and whatever. Um, and we don't know what they did. Maybe they walked away. Maybe you know some of them tried to jump in and then they left. But what we do know is that nobody tried to stop anything. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Nobody there tried to stop anybody from doing anything, though. At least we haven't seen footage of that. Um, yeah. The second thing. So the second strand are like these um, other organizations, like what Rob is talking about, like the Proud Boys, or like you know, kind of these far right organizations that are a little bit smaller but are organized. And that's kind of the second kind of strand. And maybe those are a couple of hundred people. But then the third strand are just individuals, yeah. like little dots in the entire painting that have been radicalized for years. And, you know, not to say that these other organizations have been radical for a while, but just like individuals who aren't KKK, who aren't neo-Nazis, who maybe are veterans of war with PTSD, um, you know, maybe are just like people who have mental health issues and have been radicalized, you know, since Obama, maybe since maybe since Timothy McVeigh. Uh, and they're like, you know, looking for just opportunities to do what they want to do. And so people are saying, like, maybe this guy, this military dude who was like repelling, you know, that famous that famous guy, the repeller guy. Uh, he was probably one of those individuals who was just like had had been just like really really radicalized and just like his neuroses and his and his like mental trauma was so big that he this this was just his reality now and this is what he was trying to do and maybe he was acting alone right and so so it's like those those two last strands coming together the radical groups of a couple hundred with those really intense individuals that maybe were like in the dozens. Like, that's why all of this aesthetic of, like, maybe it was coordinated. You know, this is when it all starts coming together. Um, and at the same time, just going back to Trump, yes, like, he's not a mastermind. And, um, you know, he's not really – even though it's interesting because in these people's minds, they were following his orders. So but, – but, but Trump himself doesn't believe that he was actually inciting anything. So it's how, how do we de- define, you know, inciting someone? Because Trump is like – I didn't mean for this to happen. And these people are like, Trump told us to do this. And it's like, so who's right, right? Because there's even some disagreement there. But um, we cannot deny the fact that Trump just created the conditions for this to happen. Yeah. And that's that's the last point that you were saying, Rohan, you know, that you're scared about, well, what if this happens again or it keeps happening again? The reason why it got this far in the first place is because he just sowed so much chaos and so much doubt and just like, defunded institutions and played politics and like told certain parts of the national guard to stay away or to like take the day off like all those troops that were under his control that you know he used against blm he didn't call them into action you know until like four or five hours after the capital was already breached right so um he created all these conditions that day the months before the years before so so this is why those little cells now have the freedom to just like explode like this because now you have a, a, a leader who has national power institutional power and, and can use it in different ways creating these conditions so that this, this chaos these individual matches can like light something up and maybe to rob's point you know maybe there wasn't a chance for this to be successful this time right because trump didn't have institutional backing right he didn't have the control of the military um but to your point rohan what if it happens when there is someone who does have that backing, right? And, you know, going back to Rob defining a coup, you know, I, I also don't think this is a coup, and that's why I haven't used the word to describe it. 
But um, I believe that in order for it to be a coup, the person who is staging it needs to have the, the, the support of some institution, whether that's the military, whether that's corporate interests, whether that's foreign nation, nations or organizations. And Trump had neither. Like, Trump had none. He had neither, none of this. He didn't have the military. He didn't have corporate donors. If anything, the corporations ran away from Trump immediately after this happened. They ran away from the GOP, right? Um, he didn't have, I mean, the joint joint chiefs of staff. Any So even these organizations are now calling him a coward, right? These proud boys or wherever. So Trump didn't command any institution, not even the executive branch. Like people just ditched him. Like when this happened, Mike Pence stopped talking to him. Mike Pence didn't do his bidding during that joint session of Congress. So it's not even like he had the full power of the presidency even. So, um, you know, and that's why I wouldn't call it a coup because I think when we talk about coups in other parts of the world and when we talk about like how these unfold, usually the actors involved have the backing of some institution or another, which gives them some form of legitimacy, power, and resources to then like take control of the government and then be able to do something horrific like what Rob described, which is like, maybe murder the people who are supposed to be in power, uh, maybe engage in some sort of systemic oppression of a certain group or community. We're getting to the question, I guess, to what degree was this instigated or directed by either Trump, by Cruz or Hawley? Um, I want to talk, then maybe use this as a segue into like the GOP in general. Like, So what do we make of these senators and congresspeople, and Peter talked about them a little bit too, who did like, not only some of them participated in this, others just like gave it legitimacy with their voice in Congress. Um, how are they fitting into this story that we're trying to put together here of the of what happened during the riot? Yeah, I think I think it's nuanced. Uh, oh, Rob, you go ahead. Well, I just want to say um, I'll I'll throw it in the description. But Mike Davis had a great short blog post about this, uh, where he says the kind of the point I made before, which is that this is like a a blessing for the elite Republican Party to like discipline their base, right? Like the Democratic Party, masters at disciplining their base. Expect nothing, vote for us. But the Republicans are like, I guess they love Trump. I guess we got to do the Trump thing. Um, and now they're like, have an opportunity to be like, no, you listen to us. We set the agenda and then you vote for us. Um, that's true. I think that point has been made. But another point he made that I don't think it's emphasized enough is that there is an institutional divide between the Senate and the House of Representatives. Because in the Senate, Cruz and Hawley stand out partly for being the like ones who actually, you know, I don't, I don't know what the right word is, <laughs> lean, stuck a toe in, stuck a whole foot in, perhaps, um, to this movement. But the House of Representatives has much more out QAnon supporters, um, much further right, more like more full backing of the movement. Whether you're talking about that uh, Mo Brooks guy. Um, we already mentioned Lauren Boebert, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene is the QAnon representative. There's like a solid mass of, I think like a hundred plus votes, um, for, I forget what it was, but, but there's like a solid group in the house of representatives, partly because it's more locally elected, whereas the Senate for a variety of reasons, cause it's more institutionally backed, more money goes into the races. Um, that's, I think going to drift more to a, establishment point of view. So Cruz and Holly, I don't know how they fit into it. I do think, of course, they're just trying to like, you know, get this like group of people on their side. Um, but I do think that there's going to be a bigger gulf between the House of Representatives, which are more directly responding to this movements and these people's 
uh, claims, beliefs, agreeing with them, are them versus the Senate. Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth, Rob. That was exactly what I was going to say. And I think in particular, like Cruz and Cruz and Holly, I mean, I avoided, I, I went into the day avoiding the speeches because I didn't really give a crap w- what those guys had to say. But I did tune in later the later in the evening, just out of curiosity, like how the how their tune would, would change. And I, I think in particular, you know, Holly was, you know, he still sort of proceeded. He still objected, you know, but the language was very different. And the language represented someone, at least to me when I was interpreted, of someone who was trying to toe the line, be this, be the, be, be someone who like stands out, like still gets, you know, his name in the headlines, you know, um, establishes some momentum for 2024, you know, maybe create influence in the Senate, which definitely is what, you know, Cruz was yeah. doing too. But there wasn't necessarily there was so much so much language saying like, hey, listen here, man, like I deny I denounce the riot, but you know, I'm just asking questions, you know, like I'm just asking questions here, you know? And I think that was sort of his stance that showed not really sort of the belief in it, like many members of the House of Representatives would, would do, but really wanting to be this controversial figure who pushes it along, but at the same time, not really be that controversial and still try to sort of couch it in the form of trying to poke at seemingly, you know, um, legitimate things that seem quote unquote rational, which aren't, but, you know, can be phrased as such, such that he doesn't sort of disrupt the broader base of, you know, the entire state or, you know, establishment backers, you know? So I think that's the entire Senate, you know, I think every single person in the Senate fits into that type of category, um, what, whatever stance that they want to take or whatever their moment to shine is to take advantage of it. That's that's how they got elected there. That's what they're going to keep doing. And that's, you know, how the, they, the way they think and they operate. The House of Representatives, I agree with you, totally different story, much more local, you know, probably some mix of senators, who people of that mindset, not all, not all 100 you know, are likely to be, you know, really believe in this, really push from this, come from organizations that sort of had a help, probably had a hand in, you know, running out to vote and electing them, you know, like who actually really buy, you know, a a lot of the stuff and really supported, you know, and believed in sort of the election fraud and and wanted to push their specific agenda. I don't, I, I think not all hundred are like that. I don't know how much is which, you know, but definitely that element of, of real belief and actually participating in the grassroots, you know, a little bit more, which and I guess can still happen, even though the House of Representatives, I think, I think the grassroots nature of House of Representatives is overblown many, many times because they're not representing like a small town. They're, 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 they're representing swaths of large areas. So they still have that pressures you know, and, and need the backing of some type of establishment, but you're going to get outliers here and there. And I think, you know, the media has touched on a few names, you know, but I think, and Rob, you mentioned a couple too, but I, I just, I think, I, I think it's a mixed dynamic in the house. So that's great. And I mean, like, um, so everything that you guys are saying is, is on point. And I think I'll just add a couple of things. So first of all, I mean, your, your observations about the Senate, Rohan, are right on target because even just if you think about it historically, the Senate was seen as kind of the nobility within government. I mean, a lot of republics, even the U.S. at some point, talked about having a hereditary Senate and an elected House body. Yeah, yeah, because, uh, it, I mean, that happened a lot in Latin America and these new republics. And I'm sure in the U.S. there were people who were 
also trying to propose this during the convention. But, you know, the Senate was always seen as kind of the more sophisticated chamber, right? Like the House of Lords in, in England and the Parliament. And it was like the grooming space for people who wanted to be president or head of state, right? And if you, if you think about our own politics, right? Joe Biden out of the Senate, Kamala Harris out of the Senate, Obama out of the Senate, right? People, yeah, exactly. Like people are coming out of the Senate. They're not coming directly from the House of Representatives to the presidency. I don't think we've ever had a president who came directly from the House. And even like Abraham Lincoln, who was a representative, he ran for the Senate and lost. But before he ran for president, right? You know, JFK from the Senate, RFK, right? We can go down the list. And now it's not it's not hereditary, but it's like Rob mentioned, just the institutional backing. You know? Exactly. Keep that going. means yeah, yeah that, that means institutional establishment yeah. politics. That means more money, uh, donors, big wig donors, and they're not gonna they're <laughs> not gonna have some hick, you know, like the, 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 the you know, and, and it's cultural. It, some of it might be kind of racial or classist, but there's also um, political and kind of intellectual ideological things behind this too. So yeah, I agree, and um, and in the House, I think it's just a numbers game. That's what it is for people. You know, You know, they want to just turn out their numbers. I don't care if I have to hold hands with this guy who doesn't know how to zip his pants or who ties his pants with a rope or whatever. Like, I'm going to hold hands with this guy, right? I'm going to be Donald Trump, and I'm going to go and hold hands with a guy who I have nothing in common with at all and, like, you know, not even, like, a, a value set or anything like that. So um, so I agree. And I think um, I think what's happening, though, is that – and I want to make – maybe this can segue into the next part of the episode – is that people are, just like what Rob was mentioning earlier, I mean, people were grabbing onto Trump as, like, the image of this, but also they're, like, crucifying these senators. Um, you know, some of it is self-righteous indignation. Some of it is is, is uh, feigned and not, re- not real, just kind of for the theater of it, kind of like the Democrats finger-wagging and um, even some Republicans, too. Um, and I think it's like these are the – but the, the, the reason why I think the Senate is something that is on the news and not, not only because of the imp- impeachment and they're going to be the ones who are going to try the former president, but because they've become the face of it now, right? Ted Cruz and Hawley are now like the faces yeah. in government of this movement. Like people aren't talking about, um, you know, the, the House members. I mean they talked about the House members who went in and got arrested and the guy from West Virginia and whatever. Um but they're not in the news anymore. But Ted Cruz and, and Holly, they're going to be in the news for the next two or three, four or five years, right? Because they want to run for president, because they're seen as presidential or we're seen as presidential. And um, they're going to become the face of this. They're going to be the ones who are going to have this on their plate and on their legacy, right? So I'm sure we're going to keep hearing a lot about them um, as we move forward. But I want to get now into this question of narrative, though, because it ties into the media. And I want to talk about the media a little bit and discuss it with you guys. Because it's it gets the the whole point about the Senate is that it gets into the narrative of this entire crisis, which is that, you know, the the media narrative of this whole thing, you know, it, unless you're looking at Fox News, I guess, but it's just kind of like you know Trump unleashed this into the country. He's solely responsible. He had enablers, whether it was Mike Pence, whether it was you know Mike Pence really up until the day of, whether it was the senators who still voted to toss out the electoral votes even after the insurrection or whatever. Um, and so there's this narrative, right, of, like, Trump created this monster, and now he must be punished, and th- this and that. And there's a lot of, of obfuscating that happens. Things get confused. Things get lost. Like, we lose the nuance. We lose the specifics. Um, and then, because there's that narrative, then the, the opposition, so now the Fox News and the other right-wing outlets are like, 
this is uh, you know another witch hunt, or this is kind of like a, I mean, literally like a crucifixion of our of you know this guy, this president, and you know they're coming for your rights. They're going to censor you if you voted for Trump. They're making a list. They're going coming after conservatives. People are getting banned from Twitter, banned from social media, banned from Facebook. So now it's become a war of narratives now. Like now nobody even really cares about what happened, how it happened, what it happened, what stood what it stood for. I guess now it's just like. Now it's become these tr- narratives that people like Matt Gates and you know uh, Sean Hannity are like spinning at night, and so I don't understand. You no, know, I guess my question is now like, now that there's media narratives around this that are kind of like becoming more rigid, becoming more defined, um, what's going to happen to our understanding of this crisis? Because now, now it seems like the now it seems like the the riot. And like the impeachment that goes along with it and the aftermath and the accountability, now that's becoming a partisan issue again. Just like the masks were a partisan issue. Just like social distancing and COVID was a partisan. Like all of this, you know, just like anything is a partisan issue nowadays. I'm just curious, like, what do you all think about um, the media narrative about around this and, um, you know, how it affects how we distort this event? Uh, we being the general public, academics, journalists, whatever. Um, how we maybe might understand it a little better, maybe not. Yeah, I I think it's very, very, it's very focused on continuing the narrative machine, you know, and jumping from story to story. I think, I think you said it very right, Ricky, where it's like the fact that we're on like impeachment now and we're talking about like, we're back to sort of this partisan, you know, Republican. And then like this, like, oh, like will Republicans now support impeachment because it's in their like interest it's back to being like that TV show, you know? And I think the, um, those more like sensational headlines that are interesting, captivating, like more like reality TV esque, you know, loses the focus of like what actually happened, you know? Um, and I think, and what it actually means for the future. And I think, you know, to me, you know, that's, that's going to keep happening. That's not going to stop. I'm curious to see what this backdrop, how how this actually affects what will happen, you know, just because we're, we're, we're going to just jump mm-hmm. to the next story and, you know, it'll still involve Trump in some perspective, but it loses track of, you know, the real story, which we were talking about earlier about the insurrection, which was, yeah. you know, how, how are these cells going to evolve? You know, no, it, people are talking about that, but it's, it's it's that's not the focus the focus is the government you know and the the government doesn't really matter here you know but rob why don't you you were going to say something at the beginning go ahead well part of the reason that i get frustrated with the trump instigation is because like regardless of what his views are on it they want to be able to boil it down to trump is the problem and when we get rid of trump then this problem goes away yeah and exactly this gets back to sorry if this derails us a little bit but one of the things that comes up in the media all the time is call it what it is this is like a fascist movement and ricky and i did a whole episode about this so i don't want to retread too much um we talked a lot about like trump didn't have backers on his side institutional backing and you don't get institutional backing just from being i don't know really telegenic or like persuasive you get it in a moment of crisis and a crisis in which Mm -hmm. the state can't reproduce itself and you know like a strong figure as a leading a mass movement is able to you know reconstitute um the state around that figure the Mm -hmm. party the paramilitaries whatever um and we don't 
we just don't have something like that. Part of the reason a crisis is precipitated, a lot of people point to the definition of fascism, fascism, that it's the suppression of the left, of a popular left movement. And people are like, well, we don't have a real popular left movement. We have, you know, parliamentary Democrats, you know, this like centrist bourgeois capitalist party. Um, Another way of saying that is nothing has precipitated a crisis in U.S. capitalism that the U.S. state thinks, uh, that the U.S. state can't solve or thinks it can't solve. So like the U.S. state knows the solution to this. It's like everything's fine. <laughs> These are outsiders that, are been, uh, that, that we can deal with and everything will keep going uh, as planned. Um, the Capitol, just two weeks later, we have a beautiful ceremony and, you know, there's a whole new era. Like yeah. that's part of the media narrative that like to, to disregard at the same time, like crisis, like this is like a, a the that these people are like an existential threat because like that is why you call them fascists and the Republican Party must be, you know, uh, destroyed. And like, I mean, I think that's like a somewhat mainstream progressive position. now. Lots of people are going around saying that. But at the same time as you have that, like it's so, I don't know. It's such like a, um, I don't know, like wishful thinking that like it is separated from the reality, which is that this is yet another expression of destabilization and ongoing crisis that institutions will not be able to solve because you know they can't reach that stage. There, there aren't the. There's no manual about about how to deal with this because the united states has never had to do that the united states is like we have one rule which is you know we're number one and we're going to keep being number one so the Mm -hmm. the media just can't operate outside those bounds it can't it's interesting how these like ideas of coup and fascism enter the mainstream media because like if you took that seriously you're done there's no more cnn if it's really fascism or really a coup and so but yet cnn's going on talking about these things you know what i mean so it's this weird mix yeah. of like only being able to look at it through its reflection i don't know um that's just kind of been bothering me when we talk i feel it needs to be like that's what gets that's what gets me about the whole media reaction because it's like both hyperbolic and not nearly like not assessing the crisis that we're approaching at all so that's really interesting, and I want to make two points re- relevant to that answer, Rob, because that's a very good point that you're making. And so I think the first one is, if anything, the crisis that would bring about something like a fascism or, on the flip side, like a kind of workers' revolution or whatever, is the crisis that we're still in right now, which is coronavirus, the pandemic, uh, environmental change, uh, global warming, I should say, um, you know, the race relations the, that is the crisis that will slowly, over time, will kind of, when you talk about fascism, um, right, we'll, we'll see movements of, of politicians, leaders, institutions, and the right, you know, on the right-wing politics, right, to really kind of coalesce around kind of more anti-democratic ideas, et cetera, slowly, gradually. Like, it, it'll happen, right, in, in different ways. So that's that, to me, would be something more like the evolution of fascism, but... Then again, right, we can only go with what we've seen before, so maybe it might be different this time. But what I want to say is um, this crisis that Trump created, uh, it was kind of, I don't know what to call it, because I don't want to say that it was a contained crisis, but what I want to, underst- what I want to just get out is that it was a tr- crisis that Trump created that surrounded Trump, that was propagated by Trump, by social media, by regular media, 
Like it wasn't like the kind of crisis that would bring about something cataclysmic in government. Like COVID, for example, is something that I would say is more along those lines. Um, this kind of narrative that Trump created, that then the media kind of just went with, it was just of uh, Trump's own kind of doing. Like the first, it was the election was stolen, and the second narrative is Trump is saying the election is stolen. So it's like that, but that's what it is. It doesn't go beyond that. Like that's that's the containment of that. That's why I mean contained. It's not like it's not like COVID where it's like fuck. Like there is no other narrative anymore because this is affecting every single part of our existence, right? And so. That's. I just want to separate between those two kinds of quote-unquote crises, right, and how we use that word. But I agree with what Rob was saying. The second thing I want to say, though, is one narrative that that I'm picking up on a lot on the media, the right-wing conservative media. And I want to ask you guys about this because I'm curious as to what you think. Um, because what they're saying now is the media, the, the the messaging on the right is that the Democrats have now become the corporate establishment party. And not the not in the way that the left um, says it, but like in the way of like people like Tucker Carlson, for example, are going on air saying, you know, big tech and all these big tech companies and Facebook and Twitter and these monopolies that shouldn't even exist. And you know, you have like the air of like Swenson Foods or whatever, like talking about monopolies yep. and you know economic inequality. But that's what. But but so at least Fox News is trying to spin this. In a way that their media narrative is that the people who were at the Capitol, they're the quote unquote the people and Trump is the people's man. And it's the big establishment, you know, the big government, big company money Democrats that are trying to, um, you know, kind of stump out that free speech and like infringe on people's rights. And so it's just kind of a it's such a role reversal in so many ways from like mainstream liberal narratives, liberals, right? Because. Um, you know, now it's the Democrats who are the corporate party, and the Republic, and not, and, and the Republicans are also a corporate party. And people like Sean Hannity are saying, just leave, just either leave that party, or we need to take over it and like use their machine to like you know kind of follow our mission. So I'm just so intrigued by this narrative now I'm on the right about um, you know censorship, and they talk, they love to quote George Orwell and like you know the Thought Police, and you know I feel like I'm listening to my high school students when they talk about. And, and really, um, this is like this is what the American high school system does to you, right? Like it makes you think that Bernie Sanders is the same as like George Orwell's, like whatever. You know, it's just, yeah. the Capitol so riot was just I, like Catcher um, in the Rye. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just like thinking, um, yeah, and Trump is a great guy, right? And so I'm just thinking, like, <laughs> so what do we, um, what do we do? Because that's the narrative on the other side, and that's the narrative that a lot of these people in the in the riot were telling themselves, right? The insurrectionists are telling themselves that it was big corporate Democrats again, and like their Republican allies who aren't real Republicans, like Mitt Romney and whatever, and they still consider themselves as like leading the charge for like a revolution or whatever they want to see. So what do we make of that narrative? Because I'm just really, really curious as to your thoughts on it. Yeah, Rob, you go ahead. Uh, I want to be precise about this because I do think that the Democrats are corporate party, but I think Tucker Carlson is a yeah. fool. <laughs> um, and he is the heir to a... <laughs> I agree. To a, yeah. But we, I do think that a lot of what's going on is a split between um, the basically the two wings of uh, the American bourgeoisie. And if this, if this sounds theoretical... I think it's really clear when you explain it historically because Trump represents the ascendancy of a particular kind of like local bourgeoisie that is like insulated from 
you know, the real global capitalism that we exist in today. And as global capitalism more and more, you know, pierces that bubble of, of the American economy, like you don't get your wealth from like some great, you know, smarts or innovation or whatever. You got it from being a fucking, you know, privileged enough American in 1950 that, you know, your children and grandchildren are some heirs yeah. to, you know, you have like a, a series of, because we can go back to like Trump's initial backers, many of them like these kinds of people were there people who own restaurants people who are own car dealerships um one person i'm gonna mess it up because i don't have it in front of me literally there was one woman at the capitol riot who was streaming like doing a facebook live stream walking up the steps being like this is history i can't believe it and remember and she said her name you know i'm i'm your number one real estate agent go to my website at w like it's all personal <laughs> advertising for like a certain kind of striver yeah but one in which the narrative of like... True to Trump form. Basically, the narrative of American dream is untouched and pure and kept like in this like very privileged bubble, right? Because the American dream is like a very broad idea that, you know, a lot of working class people have in this country. But like, this is something very specific to Trump's base. And when you talk about fascism, I don't think... It doesn't apply in a lot of ways, but the capital rioters are the backbone of a fascist movement, which is exactly what was in Germany. The like small bourgeoisie who are like, you know, uh, they feel themselves above the working class, but they're not, you know, the like uh, international uh, financial capitalists. And they, they don't have like their narrative of how they got to where they are is incompatible with the reality of political economy in 2021 in the United States and in the world. Yeah, for sure. And so Trump capitalizes on a group of like basically like an american i mean it's in the it's in the slogan right make america great again where they're like mm -hmm. you just have to like double down on the narrative of like everything is fine and it's like this elite international elite who are lying to you who are messing things up who are you know um right. just uh making themselves rich but like that is such a it's so absurd to yeah, i don't know on the one hand critique the democrats for you know the 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 class of people they represent and then imagine the alternative is coherent sustainable anything more than a historical blip built on you know hundreds of years of plunder and imperialism and that's not going away in a split second you know like and the only thing less stable right. than uh, capital world capitalism in 2021 is the specifically american bubble of capitalism and post-war wealth you know <laughs> what i mean so like that's the that's the war going on though between the two parties and and represented and any attempt to try to like think beyond that I think is not really entering the mainstream and is I don't know is miss and even this whole dynamic itself is mystified into cultural arguments into I don't know, just something that like well you're either people who uh, are you know racist or not racist or you're educated or you're like you know dumb white people who vote for Donald Trump or whatever it might be. And education is a part of it because, you know, if you inherit your dad's, you know, car dealership, you don't give, you don't care about college. But if you get a good job working at, I don't know, McKinsey, then you're, you know, in the, or the CIA, <laughs> then you're, yeah. you know, in, on the other side. So like, I, uh, all these like critiques or things that people bring up that like, whatever the, the Democrats are like the elite educated class or something like, they have some merit, but like in just a small, like, you know, that's just one like little angle looking at this dynamic that's going on. Yeah, I agree with you again, Rob. <laughs> I think he's, I'm letting you lead because you're, you're saying it actually much better than I would. But I think 
you know, it's nuts that, you know, I mean, I think some of these, like, you know, how are people generating the wealth and who are the people generating the wealth in terms of what those, you know, who those corporations employ? Like Tucker Carlson specifically calls out tech, you know, because, you know, people who work in tech, you know, those offices are, you know, in Silicon Valley, they're in Seattle, you know. Um, there's a lot, there's some in New York, yeah. you know, it's, it's the, it's on, you know, those are the companies that represent the wealth of these coastlines, you know, um, and the people that work there, you know, are younger people. I think some of it is, might also be a generational tension too, you know, it, it's more leaning towards more recent college graduates, you know, particularly in tech where I feel like the average age of a tech professional, the average number of experiences is, is, is five years and it just keeps doubling how many people are working in tech and how many people are getting educated in college and coming into these industries. So I think I think to some extent, you know, in addition to the source of the wealth uh, uh, these people are sort of putting from, it's also a generational thing too. I think a generational te- te- tension point, you know, and I think it, it's really complicated because both of these institutions like we talked about before the republicans and democrats like i mean tucker carlson himself i mean give me a break you know like come on you know like yeah (laughs) enough said you know like being on fox news saying this this bullshit like it it's completely hypocritical you know and i think it it's just serving that narrative i don't think you know it it really goes it feels like the tension point is both of these parties are anchored around you know the various types of corporate institutions and money that make them up and they're both yeah, trying yeah. to you know to some extent superficially appeal to the on the more popular side you know yeah um that's what tucker carlson's doing that's what the democrats are doing you know and the people that buy into it yeah. is you know you're buying into like what is the message that actually connects with you as a person more better you know and I think, I think yeah, um, exactly. it, it, they're both really, I mean, it's both doing essentially this. I think it, it's tough to say that because it's hard to equate the Democrats to the Republicans because I think, you know, um, there are a lot of issues with the Republican Party and the popularism that it tries to sort of push and, and sort of attract. But I think that fundamental dynamic is still there on both sides. I mean, I I agree with both of you. I mean, Rob and I did an episode on the political parties where we talked about precisely this, how they're more similar than they are different, even historically speaking. Um, I think we all agree here, right, about kind of the corporate money, institutional power of the establishment in each party. Um, And what I just found so interesting about, you know, I like to watch Fox News because it gives me an idea of what the other side is thinking. And it's really really fascinating, honestly. And it's funny because if you watch Tucker Carlson and and Laura Ingram specifically, not so much Sean Hannity because Hannity does, at least during the Trump years, he was like Trump's guy. So he would always just talk to him and have him or or Rudy Giuliani or whatever. But Laura Ingram and and Tucker Carlson, it's like they're giving their, their fans, their audience, like all the talking points. And they're giving like all like they're just walking them through it and just kind of like weaving in this nice little story that makes sense to them in their heads. And so then when they go to the next Thanksgiving dinner, they have all their, (laughs) you know, pre-scripting talking points that they're going to make. Right. To shut down their niece or whatever. But I just think it's really interesting because um, when they were talking about the Republican Party specifically, uh, you know, there was this guy that they had on Tucker Carlson. This this one of the guests. He's also a regular. I forget his name. He's African-American. But he was like, um, 
he was saying something like, but remember, don't leave the party. We need to take over the party because they already have all the machinery there. They have all, everything that we need. Like we just, we can't just walk out on the Republican party. And he said this thing, he had, he had this saying that was like, I, and I remember this very well. He said, remember what I always tell you. He said, there is no Democrat who is a Republican, but there are some Republicans that are secretly Democrats. What is this? This is like, this is like Rob Snyder on the other side of the mirror, right? This is like, <laughs> this is like right-wing Rob. And so I just thought it was really interesting, right? And um, because the, the kind of the, the radical, more, ra- more prone to radicalization, the right is really thinking they need to take over this party. And they need to make sure it's their party because people like Mitt Romney or Jeb Bush or Mitch McConnell, they're they're secretly Democrats, right? That's the way they see it, right? And so, but it's again going back to what Rob has been saying and what you said, Rohan, too. And you know, the power of institutions, the power of the center of the establishment of quote unquote moderates, right? Clinton Democrats, etc. Um, so I just think it's really fascinating how this is the messaging on the right after the Capitol insurrection, and so it's interesting because. I'm thinking, well, so who is your party? Because at the same time that Fox News is alienating the Mitt Romneys and the Mitch McConnells and calling them Democrats, they're also, quote unquote, denouncing the violence because I'm sure they have to because it's corporate policy because they want to you know, not get sued or whatever. And so it's like, so who are they talking to then? If it's not the Mitt Romneys and if it's not the people who are like, you know, repelling down the Capitol, you know, who is the audience? And it's like those kind of in-between you know, kind of what Rob was saying earlier, you know, those um, 8,000 or so people who didn't do anything that just went to the rally to just kind of like, you know, be there and, you know, be in the spectacle of it and tailgate and like take selfies. So I'm just, I was just really curious about the media narrative here. And this, I guess the last thing I'm going to say though is, and this goes back to the point about the House of Representatives that Rohan was making earlier too. Um, what is happening also at the same time is that both of these parties, for the last 20 years or so, that they've become more kind of inclusive in terms of gender, race, class. Now you're getting to see Congress people on the far right, on the progressive, quote unquote, left wing, whatever, who are different. I mean, this is no longer, and I said this to Robert in another episode, this is no longer like the government of Joe Biden and John McCain, where like at the end of the day, they were both these still these old white men with certain wealth and certain, you know, history and government and, you know, privileges, etc. Like this is now a government where you're beginning to see more and more people like the AOCs and the Jamal Bauman's, etc. And at the same time, like these QAnon people, these QAnon ladies from South Florida or whatever. And it's like as the tents, quote unquote, get bigger. And you start getting more and more real folk, right, in the House, especially, what's going to happen to these party mechanisms? Because it's happening on both sides, you know. And and now we see the spotlight on the Republicans because they lost the election, because Trump was such a horrible, dismal president for them, especially at the very end. Um, But this was the debate that Democrats were having last year during the primaries. And it's like so it's like this identity crisis. And I think that's inevitable, and I think it will. I think it's going to be cause a reckoning and potentially some splitting in the, in the party system. Um, but yeah, I just want to leave it with that because these media narratives are also telling you something about what each party is grappling it with from within, right? So um, I don't know what you guys want to add to that. We can also just segue into the end of the, of the show where we talk about maybe the future of the GOP and Trumpism and what we think is going to, you know, what might happen, how we're seeing things on the ground right now, and how that can change or not over time. So. Um, you guys go right ahead. Uh, you, you you go first, Ron. 
because I always do it. No, I mean, no, I feel like, I feel like both of us kind of say very similar things. I'm actually, I know we're, we're meant to talk about the future of the Republican party. I, I don't, I, part of me also wants to sort of think about the future of the, you know, the democratic party too. And I think it's actually quite fascinating in terms of how this will come on, because when you think about the anchors, like, I think this actually, all of these things that happened, are huge, huge, huge losses um, for sort of the popular movement, you know, on, on more of like, you know, the AOC camp, really more of the progressive movement. And I, I think the rationale for that is, you know, a lot of people, there's just going to be sort of that continued laziness from sort of democratic leaders, not laziness, deliberateness, to sort of keep it in that sort of Biden-centric thing. And, and I think, you know, that's, and it's going to be anchored on like, see, like, we're not the party of the insurrectionists. We're not the party of like these crazy people, you know, you, you know, even the turnout in, in Georgia, you know, which I feel was a little bit more, yeah. not necessarily motivated by an excitement, you know, for, for Joe, Joe Biden and not even necessarily the particular senators. It was more, you know, fear and, you know, animosity to the other side. And as these sort of months progress, there's yeah. going to be a lot of excitement on the media on Biden and just doing competent, basic things, you know? Um, and I think <laughs> there I think already that's is going to yeah. actually hurt. Yeah. It's already happening, you know, and it's not going to stop, you know? And I think what that's going to do is that's gonna, I don't know. I, I worry that that silences the voices of the more progressive movements and kills a lot of that momentum. So I think the interesting thing is um, before getting into the Republican party, is that the Democratic Party is very, I think, I think it's going to trudge along like it is, like right now, the Biden, the Biden presidency. I think there's going to be more support um, than ever for a Kamala Harris 2024 run, Pete Buttigieg. Like, I think this is all, it's all sort of shaking up, you know, to that, for that machine to kind of move like that. And I think what what's going to help with that then is sort of the downfall. So not the down, but the, the evolution of the Republican Party as they grapple with all of these things, you know, um, a little bit more popularism that's kind of shining through, you know, the House of Representatives, you know, the tension that's happening, you know, with Mitch McConnell, where, you know, Trump, Trumpism, Trump followers don't really buy into him being the real true Republican leader, you know, the Tucker Carlson, I think, as that continues to splinter and devolve, I think there is that's just going to that's going to harm, you know, a progressive progress in the U.S. And I think, you know, that's that's going to be unfortunate. But I think um, that that's that's sort of like at least the baseline that I'm thinking about this. But anyway, Rob, I I didn't even answer the question, so Rob, you couldn't even. I mean, it's actually interesting because I didn't expect uh, Osof to win. But now the Democrats have a you know majority fifty plus uh, the tiebreaker. Um, is there actually hope of like major legislation or anything being passed? Like since the uh, Affordable Care Act and like some other minor um, bills, I don't know. I guess whatever you think of the things like Dodd Frank uh, back in twenty ten, like it's it's been su- it's been quiet, but like it's almost like. A, 
presuppose that like, well, you know, Congress doesn't do anything. So like the Senate and House of Representatives are all here to kind of wage our fights <laughs> on the TV for yeah. us to yell back and forth at each other rather than like doing anything. And the people who does the people who do things is the president and they decide, oh, we're going to, you know, sanction Iran. Oh, we're going to join the Paris deal. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Like, I do think that that has a even if um, the like national narrative hasn't caught up to just how static things are, I do think on the ground more people. It's it's funny because at the same time, what there was the highest turnout in the last election for in the past what 120 years or something. But like at the same time, I do think more and more people are just like it. It doesn't mean that they don't. Again, it's it's a weird um, paradox where they're spending more time talking about Democrats and being quote unquote political, politicized but like not expecting anything out of it and maybe preparing parallel movements or something. I mean, a movement implies like a, a size and like a nationwide organization that I don't think exists. Um, people are all kind of watching the same things and sharing the same words, but like in terms of like group cohesiveness to like get a project done, I don't know. So I think in both parties, there will be, of course, QAnon is going to like, oh, sorry. I, I wanted to bring up QAnon, so that's why I, I, I threw that in there. But I think a lot of the MAGA people are still going to work with the Republican Party. They might, they're probably going to like, they're, they're going to be like um, like progressives or I mean leftists, but even progressives where they're like, I'm going to hold my nose and vote for so-and-so. I'm going to hold my nose and vote for uh, Josh yeah. Hawley, even though he's part of the swamp. You know, and it's like, it's still Josh Hawley, like he's supposed to be on your side. But I think that like, they've kind of moved uh, psychically or psychologically past that in a way that maybe progressives have recently. I'm glad you mentioned, I think, I think I'm glad you mentioned QAnon. I want to, I also really, we should just talk about QAnon. <laughs> I feel like we all really want to talk about QAnon. <laughs> it's sort of like a fun, I think it's actually like quite fascinating. Like the thing that like, I think this also kind of goes to the future of the Republican Party to, to, to some extent. The thing, because to me, the, the issue, and it also goes to the Capitol riots. Like, to me, the thing that was kind of the, the thing that I latched on that was like the quote-unquote scariest was that there were measured spikes that the FBI realized, that, 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 that they alerted, that there were, you know, more, you know, organizations online of violence. And QAnon, it's... I think there's sort of that central figure of that to some extent, you know, because they are, you know, the crazy, I don't know what forum it's on, whether there's Reddit forums or, or, for, or whatever the heck, Parler. you know, it's probably all over, <laughs> all over in various forums across the internet. But to some extent, I would imagine that it would be happening in, in some of those typical QAnon forums. So I think, you know, when you say QAnon, one, I think there've been a lot of jokes about how crazy some of those thoughts are, you know what I mean? How people kind of buy into it. But I think definitely the key theme of like the movement of sort of, you know, more unified popular organization, you know, it's centered on QAnon, which is crazy, but it's going to happen in these online forums where people are just curious, checking them out, you know what I mean? And then saying, okay, that's interesting, that's great. They learn a few ideas, they start getting softly going into the community, and then how it escalates, you know what I mean? In terms of, you know, the riots, attending attending, attending these 
um, insurrections that happened at the Capitol, you know, and more and more organizations. But I think it all starts, and a lot of people are saying this online, as sort of that gatekeep anonymous, like satisfy curiosity. Maybe you're lonely or whatever it is, you know. Maybe you want. Maybe you're bored. You want to get into <laughs> something, you know, and you don't want to get into like. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so much of it comes out of boredom. Yeah, and I think, and I think, um, you know, and you want to, you want to just like study something without even realizing you're studying anything, and you know, get into the the mythos of whatever it is, you know. And I think, um, I think a lot of these, you know, maybe QAnon is is I have no idea because QAnon itself was so Trump focused, and particularly Trump presidency focused, um, but and what. And killing the cabal and whatever the hell it was, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, I think <laughs> I think it's an incredible, you know, first step for people to sort of like what you were mentioning earlier too, Ricky, with which is the step to the radicalization. I think the evolution of the Republican Party has to. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I also think like four years ago, you know, like when Trump was elected, people were like, okay, the Democrats are going to. I mean. They're going to reject, you know, the Hillary Clinton style candidate. It's going to be more progressive. And it didn't happen. You know what I mean? It happened, but it, you know, and we, we, we elected certain House of Representative candidates, you know, that, you know, measured some of the underlying ethos of, of their, their local constituents, but it didn't progress beyond there. I mean, the question is, is it really going to progress there on the Republican side, is, is it, isn't this the same idea? And I think to some extent, QAnon's a little bit more of a, a central figure of that because is how is this organization going to look? Is it going to lean, you know, more like these white supremacists, more in racism? Like, how is it actually going to move? And I, I don't know what the size is. It might be, it will be come back in four years and it'll be, the same thing again, and it kind of fizzles out, and then all of a sudden there's a progressive movement on the on the left. Um, but you know, I, I think the question, and it goes to QAnon, is how how is this? What what is the, the size and the magnitude of this really? You know, and how will it really, you know, continue momentum after this? No, no, no. I mean, so I mean, I think we should do a whole episode on QAnon, Rob, so that way we can really focus sure. on it. And we've talked about it a bunch in the last season too. Um, I, I mean, I just wanted to kind of just to your point, Rohan, I think a little bit underneath of everything you're saying beyond QAnon and a little bit of what I'm feeling, too, is that we're beginning to see a government and Rob and I have said this and we talked about it a bunch and it's been happening for decades. But, um, you know, gridlock has now become the norm and now like government being dysfunctional is the norm at a time when the society is in crisis where there's deeper class divides than ever before, income disparity, uh, racial tensions, climate crisis, health crisis. I mean, we talked about this, right? So, so we're in for a collision course is what I'm trying to say is as kind of like, I'm not even thinking about the future of either of the parties because I'm thinking like the government in and of itself is coming into a collision course that is going to blow up at some point, whether it's decades from now or like, you know, in five years, but Um, I think that we're beginning to see a population that's more diverse, that's more unequal in terms of wealth distribution, especially. And and everybody, I mean, because the thing that binds all of this together is both the QAnon people and the Antifa people 
don't think their government works. I, like everything else could be so different, but both sides are aware that there is an establishment that is behind the machinery and that the goal of that establishment is to have superficial politics and aesthetic politics, you know, the inauguration and whatever, but not really change things in any revolutionary way for whatever side, right? And so and so this is the tension that's gonna, and this is what I was telling you guys earlier, like this is what could lead to a fascism, like a fascist movement or like a progressive work or whatever, because we're in for this collision course of a dysfunctional government that is not going anywhere, is not doing anything. I mean, I mean, come on, even Biden with the stimulus, like that was such bullshit, like promising $2,000 checks on the campaign trail. And then, you know, three weeks later, it's like, well, actually it's 1400 and you know, just even that, the fact that that is a thing is so upsetting. And so what I'm seeing is that on both sides of the ideological spectrum and even just like along the entire range of it, people are becoming more and more frustrated with government and more agitated and more pressed to find solutions because of the crises that we're going through. So they're more likely to resort to violence or be radicalized or look at this online stuff that really kind of makes the world make sense because they're suffering so much in whatever it is that they're living through. And so, um, you know, I just think, so I I guess to answer the question, future of the Republican Party, there's going to be a reckoning, just like there was for the Democrats. I'm sure there'll be an interesting primary or whatever, uh, especially in 2022, like an interesting primary season. But to your point, Rahan, I mean, eventually, you know, the money talks is, is, is real. I mean, money talks. And so there's going to be that establishment wing again, trying to, you know, coalesce the party and they'll have a compromised vice presidential candidate or something like Kamala or whatever. And, uh, like maybe it'll be Marco Rubio for the, <laughs> like maybe he's like the team, you know, whatever. But yeah. Actually it would be Marco Rubio. Yeah. But, it's getting close to it in, like, in Europe. Like more and more there's like yeah. Italy is heading towards just like a complete caretaker government because the right wing is yeah. just, and yeah, Marco Rubio would be the person who's picked if we reach that stage. Because he's like full QAnon. Like he's Tea Party enough, but he's not full QAnon. So he's okay. So it's like Kamala, right? And, and he's diverse. He's ethnic, right? So, and that's what I'm saying. It's like, um, so, but, 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 but if, if the Fox News, if there's anything that, that I'm seeing in Fox News is that is, is there's this undercurrent, undercurrent of like, we're done with the theater. We're done with the symbols. We're done with the rituals. Like we want action. We want like I kind of almost wish the left had a Fox News. Like not like not MSNBC. Like fuck that. Like I mean like a like I kind of almost wish that people on the left had something like that where it's like you have people on TV calling you to organize and to go on strike. Can you imagine that? Like we don't have anybody doing that on on, on you know. Well, to be fair, it's on different mediums, you know, and I think it's to the nature of the, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Different mediums, of course, yeah. But I want it, what I mean is like mainstream media and, you know, Rob and I did an episode on the media and how it's designed to just like get you to consume more media and not really do anything. So, but that's what I mean. It's like, uh, you know, regardless of what I think is going to happen with either of the parties, I think the government and the structure, of, the political structure of society is in for a real crisis, like what Rob was discussing earlier. Uh, and I think it's going to be a rough couple of decades <laughs> i mean i really don't i think uh i think history might repeat itself too with you know some of the things that happened like say right before world war ii and stuff i mean I, i'm i don't say that lightly but i just think um you know we're seeing it all over the world uh you know radicalization by the right you know dysfunctional dysfunctional states crisis of capitalism crisis of environment crisis of health you know it's going to be harder it's only going to get harder from here 
And I think Rob mentioned it, or he sent us a tweet comparing Joe Biden to Sar Nicholas II. Uh, somebody, <laughs> Did I? Somebody's, I saw some that's, I saw, I saw that somewhere, but it's so accurate. Like Joe Biden is like the Nicholas II of the <laughs> United States. It's just like the last czar, I'm flattered you know, you the thought last of me, president, I didn't send it. the last inaugural before the shitstorm happens, right? And so, you know, we'll see, but. Um, that was just my two cents. Uh, Rob, I don't know what you wanted to add. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no. Um, I interjected. I have a few things to say about QAnon, actually. It might go a little all over the place. Um, the first thing is that we, I'm no expert, so you know, listeners, please uh, contact me or weigh in if you, if, if, if you want to discuss further. But one thing that needs to be said about QAnon is that it is not the same as the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, those are those militia groups, um, or like radical organizations. It is like an amorphous narrative, basically. It's kind of like a general set of, it's a story, basically, that a lot of people kind of like touch on and draw symbols from. And uh, the story part I'll get back to in a second, but the first part I want to say is that it is broader, it is probably more diverse, and... Yeah, those two broader and more diverse than those militia or right wing or right, extreme right organizations. Like, more, there are more. Um, in one of the articles I read, I think it was the Washington Post. They talked about how you know they looked at these experts who you know look at the capital, the state capital riots over the past several months, and comparing it, even the early um, anti-lockdown protests. Uh, when was that? May, April? It's all blending together. Um, uh, yeah, like in yeah. The spring, um, spring but that summer. there were many more women at the DC, uh, at the, at the Capitol riot. Um, and that's not that I'm kind of uh, making an assumption here, but like that is also kind of a sign of the QAnon side of things, which is not, you know, we are white nationalist neo-Nazis. It is that the elites are evil and we will overthrow them. And I think that that message yeah. is just more, it's broader. It, it reaches more people. It reaches um, more uh, non-white people. It reaches more non-conservatives. There's a lot of talk about since, and it's only going to get bigger, how a lot of QAnon people are picking up the anti-vax crowd, which has a right-wing element, but is also a lot of like upper middle class, um, you know, women who probably don't work, who stay at home and, you know, it, yeah. So like, what does that mean? Uh, does yeah. that mean they're white nationalists because they start doing QAnon stuff? Like, yes and no, right? Like, it's a it's a tension going on here. Yeah. And yeah, and I think you do have to identify that like QAnon is more, I don't know, diffuse, uh, which I guess makes it like less threatening, but also more depending on what uh, direction you're reading it in, less threatening, but also more uh, could lead to something bigger. Uh, at the same time, I do think Q in its mm. form will disappear because it was so rooted around Trump. But Q like yeah. things will exactly. you know emerge and the the function it has yeah in for the right and in the u.s today is not going anywhere um i want to share yeah. one it's that conspiratorial yeah. thinking yeah. yeah absolutely and cons i completely understand the conspiratorial thinking i've been uh been known to share conspiracy here and there um because like yeah you know it's fun for a lot of people it's freeing it's freeing right like oh finally like i just like hate these people you know or like ah, nothing makes sense i just want to yeah you know, lash out or do something. Um, and to that point, actually, is QAnon expresses some real alienation. Like, 
this is always like there's a debate on the left like because some people were like these are white working class and you laughing at them like that's why they turn to the right and they're mostly you know pretty well off like on average especially compared to the national average like anyone who goes to the u.s capital right so that's a lot of nonsense but at the same mm -hmm. time you could acknowledge that people who turn to conspiracies QAnon, um especially those who are like not on the like white nationalist side of it who are on the other <laughs> you know the other outskirts of the QAnon yeah. phenomenon turn to it out of a sense of alienation they might not be working class but they face some alienation in society and i think we can all relate to that and like then the and from government yeah. and it's a narrative to turn to i want to share one uh tweet thread i read um this might be controversial uh, but i think it's an interesting point to make because you mentioned ricky that there's antifa and QAnon as the two sides but i do think antifa would be and you know i'm not trying to do the horseshoe theory stuff but in terms of like practical action would be closer to the like militia groups on the right in terms of they want to do something. Oh, yeah. And what QAnon is, yeah. is basically like, I don't know, like wokeness or like the discourse of like equality exactly. and things. Yeah. QAnon is like an attitude, is like an, <laughs> that permeates. Yeah. It's yeah. like a lifestyle. Yeah. It's yeah. like a, you know, you're QAnon. It's a set of beliefs. Like, it's, it's not a, an organization. It's not, it's like a, yeah. The, uh, no, I, I know the, what you The thread saying. I read, which yeah. I'll share is like, basically, because a lot of people point out the like, uh, just absurdity that QAnon puts all its faith in Donald Trump. Like he's the one who's going to take down the elites. And then you flip the coin and it's like, yeah. And Joe Biden is your like paragon of exactly. wokeness. Really? Yes. Like this movement, yeah. like got <laughs> Joe Biden. And both of them are stories in order to like manage these contradictions, right? Like, no, no, no. But like, they're clearly not what we want, but you know, we, they're going in our interests or there's something that we're like fighting for here. And like, I don't know. There's, exactly. there's an interesting, I don't, I think it's uh, a lot of people use the quote unquote horseshoe theory to delegitimize all like dissent in the country. But like, I think it is useful to compare ways that people become disaffected with politics, with the system, with institutions, and what new forms are developing. Some of those forms might be egalitarian right. and positive, and some might be very brutal and dangerous. And yeah, not, exactly. Not That's what I'm I was saying earlier. To. It's like, this is just the beginning that's your point rob this alienation and this this is just the beginning and it'll only get worse because to rohan's point we have a government that's just kind of there stalling controlled opposition you know fate you know rituals and you know maybe getting some minor things done but then you have a, the whole populace is just like yeah. suffering <laughs> like just economically health you know health-wise psychologically you know it's just it's gonna get worse but I agree with what you just said, Rob. I agree with with um, your points. Thank you for for sharing them. Uh, very interesting stuff, Rohan. You want anything to add to Q the QAnon no, part of I, this I think, closing, think, or anything else? Maybe you want not to say? QAnon, but I think I think you know when you're comparing comparing these two separate ethos. You know, I'm glad that you brought up Biden. I think it's quite fascinating that you know it, it seems like the ethos is more advanced on the on the right because Trump was elected. You know, like. It wasn't Ted Cruz, it wasn't Marco Rubio, it wasn't John Kasich, you know? To some extent, they've already moved to that side. And, you know, on the left-hand side, you know, and some of the more, like, progressive woke thinking, like, Biden was elected, you know? Which is much, much further away. Not Maybe not much, but I think I actually do think yeah, it's actually sure. pretty significantly further away than what Trump was to those, you know, QAnon ethos, you know, supporters. Um, at the very least, well, maybe not. I don't know. I think that might be a little bit of a tough thing to wrangle, but I think definitely 
it was a win against an establishment, right? Like Trump was not an establishment candidate at the time. I think if we're using that as sort of a barometer, you know, I think there's a lot more progress in this QAnon ethos that's kind of happening. I think it's more organized, Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. know, maybe not more organized. It's it's hard to say, you know. It's a movement that has a moment in government, whereas like on the left, that's not there. But on the right, and I don't know how to Trump make of that. that. That's why I think you know at the very beginning I couched it on the Democratic Party because I think this is this is the idea that I'm, I'm trying to rest, wrestle with. I'm still still wrestling with, but it feels it feels like you know the Demo- Democratic is much more there's much more of willingness to toe the party line, you know, and, and to sort of buy mm. into this and yeah, to buy sure. into Joe Biden and not push. For that additional, you know, you know, a more progressive candidate. Whereas I think on the Republican side, it's it's a little bit more fractured, where there is this more willingness um, to approach just because of that strength of that that community that's that's building right now. Because Republicans don't have that electability argument that the Democrats yeah. use because Trump was elected and nobody thought he could get elected. Whereas the Democrats are still going to look at Excellent. someone like exactly. Bernie and say he's not electable, right? Exactly, yeah. And, and you know, Rob mentioned this when he was in New York and we did the live stream. We, we went to the park with my son. And Trump, I mean, sorry, not Trump. And Rob mentioned this really well. Rob made this really good point saying how we were talking about Trump. And Rob says the left doesn't have their Trump because it's not, it, it would be someone outside of government. It, it would be like some organizer or, you know, like that would be like the equivalent. And I think that's what you're getting at, Rohan, that with Trump, even if there's all these contradictions about, you know, Trump is wealthy, Trump is elite, Trump is New York, Trump is this, uh, you know, the QAnon people saw themselves and saw their movement have that moment in government through Trump. That's never happened with like Antifa or whatever. And I think it would never happen because it's it's automatically opposed to what the U.S. government is in many ways. Um, like even if it's in its own essence, like it's contradicting, it wouldn't, it would be a negation of sorts. Um, so I just think it's so interesting how, um, you're right though. I agree with you. Um, there is, and just gets to your larger point about the democratic party that you just made a couple of minutes ago. Um, there's going to be a harder time on the left to mobilize for, you know, what, whatever set of causes than there is on the right, despite the fact that Trump lost, despite the insurrection on the Capitol, despite all this stuff. You know, people in the QAnon crowd, they, they they already have history making their argument for them. They have Trump. They have Trump. They have the four years of Trump, and they could say, we could just do that again. People on the left don't have that because people on the left never have never had someone who champions their cause um, in government, you know, not, not in the way that Trump did. So that's why I'm saying, you know, and I, and I, and I would argue – you, you're never going to see an anti-imperialist president in the United States because that's a contradiction in turn because the president of the United States is an imperial figure. And so that's what I mean. It's like it's much harder on the left because the left itself is a lot further away from the spectrum in terms of the U.S. government than like the right. And so, but I mean, we'll see. You know, I hope that made sense. But um, I like these closing observations. So maybe we could just end with some closing thoughts uh, on the episode, tying it all together. So what do we think? How are we feeling about you know, the Biden administration and how these problems will unfold or intensify um, in the next couple of months and years? Um, okay, I'm actually going to 
I like what you said, Ricky, and I, I, I'm still thinking through what the left needs to do, <laughs> but uh, I haven't got there yet. Yeah. What I have thought through is like the the stage of the right, the like you know MAGA right at this point in time, and the strange intersection of like Trumpism and, um, yeah, like the end of Trumpism and the beginning of something. Um, and the blog post, uh, I'm going to edit it into the description whenever it's ready. So I'm trying to finish it as quickly as possible, but basically yeah, yeah. what, what struck me about all of the live streams and actually I didn't say this in our live thing. The first thing I did, I didn't watch CNN. I went to Twitch and watched live streams on Twitch, which is my favorite activity. I highly recommend it to anyone who mm-hmm. wants to know what's going on. Woke is a great mm-hmm. channel that just collects a bunch of streams. I watched Baked Alaska, if you guys know him, <laughs> um, you know screaming about how you know he's a he's a you know you can't do this to him he's a sovereign citizen and yeah (laughs) um but what they kept saying over and over again is that this is a revolution and like to me that word revolution captured the contradictions of the moment so much better than all these words that the media or even like activists are trying to use as lenses of coup and fascism and stuff because what does revolution mean today it means on the right like this like American revolution fetishism. Uh, and I'm going through some of that history. It means like the actual turn on the far right. I cite um, the Chicago historian, Balu, you mentioned, Ricky. Um, like that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it also is just this like, I think in a weird way, like picking up where this, the left in the, the 60s and the, sorry, the left in the 60s left off, which is like this kind of general revolution. Like we can do anything. You know, like a lot of that is sort of laughed at today because like, oh, they're so young. There's just these like, you know, on one end, it's like it captures that contradiction, right? Because like there were people fighting for like revolutionary change in the 60s and 70s. And then there were like a lot of hippies saying, yeah, it's the revolution, Mm -hmm. man. And I think on the right, there's like a similar dynamic going on. Um, I think Mm -hmm. optimistically you can say it'll peter out in the same way that the left, (laughs) the sixties left is like uh, (laughs) petered out. Um, It'll get taken over by a bunch of yuppie students. (laughs) Yeah. Very uh, (laughs) like a bunch of people dedicated to the new right wing American state (laughs) that's now serving their interests. Yeah. Who knows? Um, But I, I'm going to set, put that in the, uh, in the description for the episode and then some thoughts on the left. I will add at some point in the future once I, figure them out <laughs> but i guess those are yeah no for thoughts. sure we can revisit this on multiple episodes multiple seasons but thank you thank you rob for sure rohan what about you what are your thoughts on like it doesn't have to be the left or the right just you know it could be by just kind of what you think will happen to these political tensions um as we get into yeah, the biden harris administration um, i mean it's a lot of what we talked about i mean i think to some extent it's a microcosm the advancement of sort of the popular movement on the right it, it actually is represented quite a bit by just the tensions that these the people in the Senate, you know, the, the, the Ted Cruz, the Josh Hawley's are, are trying to sort of navigate to where, you know, it's, there, there is this pressure amongst establishment candidates to actually respond on the right to this. On the left, that it, it, it's not really there, you know, like at all. And, and I don't think it'll be there for the next four years either. So I think... You know, this tension is really going to be this dynamic that's just going to keep hitting is this underplay of, you know, coastal elites, you know, on the Democratic side, which that 
that party is a little bit more firmly sort of entrenching itself in versus this dynamic of a more popular movement where, you know, Mitch McConnell and Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley probably are pulling their hair out trying to sort of grapple. That's why they went along with Trump's nonsense on denying the election because, you know, there, there is an actual fear there of losing the base, which isn't there on the left. And I think, yeah, for sure. um, You know, I think, that went into the frust, and I, you saw different reactions to the loss in Georgia. You know, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley leaning in, Mitch McConnell being Mitch McConnell being like, "Fuck this, I'm out. I lost an election. Back to my basics." You know, um, and I think that dynamic is just gonna is gonna really, unfortunately, gonna dominate. You know, the direction of where this country goes, um, and I think that's that that's that central theme. It's gonna be spoked on by Fox News. You know, there'll be the glorification of revolutions every time there's sort of a, a little change or some type of outburst yeah, for sure. or, or something. But I think all of that will just build on more and more momentum for the right, which is which is scary. Um, mm-hmm. It is scary, but um, that's I, I think that's where we're headed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, those, those are some great points, Rohan. And I agree with what both of you have said. Um, and I think just to add my contribution to that is that I think to your point, Rohan, I think the Republican Party needs to figure out if they want Trumpism or if they don't want it. Because, and I say the word want because they never really owned Trumpism. Like it was always Trump's base. It was never the Republican base. Like for them, it was always Trump's base, Trump's movement, Trump's followers, Trump's Twitter, Trump, Trump, right? Everything belonged to Trump. But here's the problem. Trump is not there anymore. So they have to figure out if it's going to be theirs, if they're going to really own it, right? And be like, fine, I'm going to go down with this ship too. I'm going to try to ride this tiger. Or if they're going to say that's not what we're about. And I think, I honestly think, I think this is why a lot of people don't want to have the impeachment on the Republican Party because they want Trump to run for office again because they want to still have it be his movement. They still want to be able to pin it on him and walk away when it's convenient. If he's gone... They know, or if his family, you know, if, if the Don Juniors and the Ivankas can't run or whatever, then they don't have anybody to pin it on, right? They actually have to be stop being cowards and, and like fucking own it, it or like decide it whether or not they want to ride the ball, right? And that's the thing. It's like they don't want to. They haven't done that in four years. It's always been Trump's base and Trump's rhetoric and Trump supporters. So now that Trump is like potentially going to be exiting, their question is, do I want it? Or do I not want it? Like it's it's like it's like a heroin rush. Am I gonna try it or am I not gonna try it? Like I know that if I try it, it's gonna kill me, right? But if I don't try it, I'm not gonna have the rush. Like, what am I gonna do? Right. And so that's what I mean. It's like they're like debating something that is gonna be like a lose-lose for them. And so again, so I think they're gonna have that on their plate. Uh I think the Democrats, honestly, I don't and we can do a whole episode on this too, but I don't think anything's gonna happen. Um, I think it's I think the unity and the rhetoric of bipartisanship or whatever, there's not going to be much progressive legislation. Uh, there'll be a lot of organizing, I hope, for 2022. I really hope so for progressive candidates. But um, I don't think, uh, nationally speaking, at the federal level, we're going to see much movement. I don't think AOC is even going to primary Schumer anymore. Uh, I think, um, I mean, she should, but I don't think she will because she's kind of fallen in line with the party recently. Um, so we'll see. I mean, uh and then in terms of both parties, it's I just want to double down on what I said earlier. 
regardless of all this kind of internal tension, I do think that we're headed on a collision course to like this big, huge crisis moment, if we're not in it already, of a dysfunctional government, dysfunctional society, and a public in crisis that needs assistance and needs to look for some way of feeling like they're in power of what's going on. So, um, you know, I think the next 10, 20, 30 years or so is going to be what we're going to be dealing with. Uh, because precisely, I think COVID, on top of everything else, just blew it all to hell. Like, I think there's no way now that, that this that this next, you know, generation is going to be about dealing with cleaning up this mess. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's not <laughs> it's not the most optimistic note, but I think it gives us enough opportunity to lay, lay out the rest of the season. You know, Rob and I will be talking a lot about different subjects. We're, you know, going to be determining those, you know, in the near future and maybe sharing them with our listeners soon. But I think this is a great start for season two, you know, having Rohan back on, you know, Peter as well before he had to leave, you know, our two hopefully reoccurring guests who helped us end the first season now help us inaugurate the second one. So I want to say uh, thank you to, to both of you, uh, Rob and Rohan, for sticking it out, you know, helping and walking us through to the end with the listeners. Uh, I also want to thank Peter for all of his great contributions. And uh, I want to thank, obviously, our kind of corporate sponsors, Skype, uh, Audacity, Lovo Online Studio, and Audio Jungle for all of our online needs. Uh, And just want to say bye to everybody. Thank you for sticking around for two seasons with us. This is Ricardo Alvarez signing out. Thank you so much. And remember that the revolution will not be televised. Thank you. It's only a matter of time. Justice is coming. Everywhere, all the way back to the monument, all the way. Jesus Christ, we invoke your name. Amen. Amen. Let's all say a prayer. Let's all say a prayer in this sacred space. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for gracing us with this opportunity. Thank you. Let me take a bite. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Amen. For this opportunity to stand up for our God-given unalienable rights. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the inspiration needed to these police officers to allow us to this building, to allow us to exercise yes, our rights, to allow us to send a message Amen. to all the tyrants, the communists, and the globalists that this is our nation, not theirs, yes. that we will not allow the America, the American way of the United States of America to go down. Thank you, divine, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent creator God for filling this chamber with your white light of love, with your white light of harmony. Thank you for filling this chamber with patriots that yes, love you Lord. and that love Christ. Yes. Thank you, divine, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent creator God for blessing each and every one of us here and now. Amen. Thank you, divine creator God, for surrounding and filling us with the, the divine, omnipresent white light of love and protection, peace, and harmony. Thank you for allowing the United States of America to be reborn. Thank you for allowing us to get rid of the communists, the globalists, and the traitors within our government. We love you and we thank you. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.